Serena, this has been your stage. This is your moment. What would you like to say to your family, your friends, and all the millions of fans that are watching you around the world? Um, oh my God, thank you so much. You guys were amazing today. I, I tried, but Allah just played a little bit better. Um, thank you, Daddy. I know you're watching. Um, thanks, Mom. Oh my God, Mom. Uh, just thank everyone that's here, that's been on my side so many years, decades. Oh my gosh, literally decades. Um, but it all started with my parents and they deserve everything, so I'm really grateful for them. Oh, oh my God, these are happy tears, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be Serena if it wasn't Venus, so thank you, Venus. She's the only reason that Serena Williams ever existed, so, um... Well, tonight, Serena Williams takes the court at the U.S. Open to compete in what's expected to be the last major Grand Slam of her legendary career. Many consider Williams, who is now 40, the greatest tennis player of all time, and no one denies that she's changed the game. Let's take a look at the impact that she's had both on and off the court. With each swing, each step, each day, Serena Williams inches closer to the end of an incomparable era of tennis. She's already taken home six titles here at the U.S. Open, but this time, she says, will likely be her last. Over her 27-year pro career, Williams has won 856 matches and lost just 154. That includes an astounding 365 major match wins, the most of all time, and 23 Grand Slam singles titles, the most in the Open era. Off the court, she has shattered barriers, battling racism and sexism, redefining beauty, and setting new bars for financial success. Earning not only $95 million in career prize money, the most of any women's tennis player in history, but also superstar big brand endorsements. She has also repeatedly challenged the status quo, claiming her last major title while pregnant in 2017. And Serena smashes Steffi's record. It's number 23. A pregnancy that nearly killed her. Then she used her voice to raise awareness for black maternal mortality. Writing in Elle magazine, quote, black women are nearly three times more likely to die during or after childbirth than their white counterparts. Being heard and appropriately treated was the difference between life or death for me. I know those statistics would be different if the medical establishment listened to every black woman's experience. For the next generation, like 18-year-old tennis star Coco Gauff, Williams set a standard to reach for. If she had 23 grand slams and was a terrible person, I wouldn't consider her the GOAT. I think for me what makes her the GOAT is her personality and all that she's done for off the court to fight for equality, um, to fight for young players like me. Serena Williams was raised in Compton, California. Her father Richard coached her and sister Venus on public courts. Big things were expected from an early age. Here's Serena at 11. 
I like to be a tennis player. If you were a tennis player, who would you want to be like? Well, I like other people to be like me. Three years later, she turned pro. Three years after that, she won her first Grand Slam title at the 1999 U.S. Open. She was just 17. Injuries threatened to derail Williams' career. An ankle sprain forced her to withdraw from the 2002 Australian Open. But within months, she was hoisting trophies again, winning the French Open, the U.S. Open, and Wimbledon, defeating big sister Venus in each of those finals. Serena Williams had solidified her place as the number one player in the world. And her impact on the game, says tennis legend Chris Evert, is undeniable. You know, there's two things about Serena. I think the legacy about her game is she brought power, a new, a new level of power into the game. And, and also Venus, too. The Williams sisters have brought power. They've brought fearlessness um, in, in on and off the court. The Williams sisters became fierce opponents and dominant teammates, becoming the first sister duo to claim Olympic doubles gold in 2000, 2008, and 2012. But their success didn't shield them from blatant racism. After the crowd hurled racial slurs at the family during the 2001 Indian Wells Tournament in California, Serena boycotted the event for 14 years. When she returned in 2015, she explained why in a Time Magazine op-ed, writing, quote, Indian Wells was a pivotal moment for my story, and I am part of the tournament story as well. Together, we have a chance to write a different ending. Another ending now nears as Williams hints at her next chapter in life. On Friday in New York City, Williams, whose venture capital firm Serena Ventures has raised $111 million, rang the bell at the New York Stock Exchange. Mere days before what's expected to be her final major tennis tournament. I think that Serena has contributed um, probably more off the court than on the court. I mean, I look at her off the court, I look at her fearlessness, you know, body shaming to women of color, to mothers, you know, working. Um, she's, she's really spoken up for a lot of issues. I think the fact on the tennis court, she's brought a new level of power into the game. And so she's been, she's revolutionized power in women's tennis. I'd put her right up there with Muhammad Ali and Billie Jean King and Michael Jordan and as far as superstar, superstar. Let's delve more now into Serena Williams' incredible career and legacy with William C. Roden. He has long covered her as well as her sister Venus and many other tennis greats. He's been writing about her accomplishments for the sports and culture website, Anscape. Bill Roden, welcome back to the News Hour. Always good to have you here. We're talking about Serena's next chapter because of this essay she wrote in Vogue, but she didn't say retirement. She said transition. She said evolution. What does that mean to you? And what did you think when you read it? Well, the first thing that uh, got me was when she said the, the R word, because that terrifies me too. That's the thing that resonated with me, just the idea of not doing something that you've been doing, in my case, since I was like 10 years old, uh, and the idea of not retiring. And I know how terrifying it has to be for her to be eight years old, to come from Compton, uh, to become what I think, along with her sister, I I've been doing this now for about 49 years. And I think without doubt, the story of Venus and Serena Williams is probably the greatest sports story in the United States history, bar none. 
And for her to finally wake up one day and look at her daughter, say, you know what, I just don't want to do this anymore. Uh, I know that has to be hard. It has to be pulling at her heart. Um, but if there's any solace, is that what she has accomplished uh, for women, for black women, for equity, I think at this point of our history is unparalleled. I think it's just, we're at the point now, it's, it's still fresh and words, uh, although we're all wordsmiths, words can't really describe the impact that she has had uh, at so many levels. You know, I think about, you know, my black mother, my, my black sister, my, my, my black daughter, and what she's meant for them in terms of empowerment, in terms of confidence, in, in terms of victory. Uh, you know, it's, it's just, um, I, it's just such mixed emotions because I hate to see her go. Mm -hmm. I hate to see her go, but I'm so excited about these next chapters. Bill, she is one Grand Slam title short of beating the record, Margaret Court's record of, of 24. Do you think there's any chance she ties that or breaks that before she says goodbye to I'm the, As we could identify this as journalists, <laughs> the great, the, <laughs> we cheer for the story, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, great, the great story is that she finds one more magical moment at the U.S. Open, and we find her playing Saturday I mean, what better, what, what better way to go out than to win, to tie Margaret Court at the U.S. Open? I mean, that that would just be unbelievable. Like now, I'm thinking as a journalist, uh, and and also with my heart. But that would be, that would be yet another movie. Well, the big question, as, as you mentioned briefly, it, it's legacy, right? It, it is impact both on the court and and off. I mean, the game. If you just look at her impact on the game. It is different today than it was pre-Serena. Tell me about her impact just on the game of tennis. Well, just, and, and Chris Everett mentioned this too, just the, the introduction of power. Uh, and, and Venus, by the way, I, I've got to say, Venus was sort of the precursor to that because we had never seen anybody with that type of power before. Serena just took it to a whole nother level of just playing a pure, power game. And and I, I also think that we have to talk about the intimidation factor. And this was so liberating, I think, to uh, to women athletes in that, hey, man, you know, you could get out there and you could sweat. You could be a sweat getter. Sometimes you could curse if you want to. And, and I think that that was just so liberating. I think that her competitiveness uh, is, to me, is what, is what sets her apart. She's, she is just such a ferocious a competitor. So I think that the comp, the, the, the power, but the power in combination with just being a ferocious competitor, I, I think is really what uh, has made her a, a timeless uh, figure in, in that sport. You had this great line about her in your latest piece. I'll quote from you here. You said she's been the sports equivalent of Beyonce and is her generation's Aretha Franklin, singing loud and long and leaving no uncertainty about the way she felt. What did you mean by that? Uh, that that's, you know, if you've ever been to, I was fortunate to see Aretha uh, and Beyonce kind of out the side of my eye. But with Aretha, Aretha was just this natural force. You know, she says a natural, she's just this natural force of nature. And you leave a concert from her and you have, there's no mistaking how she felt about life. And I think that with Serena, she left all her emotions on the court. There was no, I mean, 
I, I know she's probably not proud of this one, but when she confronted that 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 poor line judge, and she told her what she was going to do with that racket, how she's going to stick it down her throat. And Serena's one of the sweetest people you'd want to meet off the court. But there, <laughs> anybody at the court side, they're like, yikes, you know. So she, you know, you after a Serena Williams match, and I'm sure if it happens tonight, you will know exactly how she feels. She's not going to pretty fire. She's not going to sugarcoat. And that's what I love about her is just that she she really leaves. It's just so raw. And she leaves it on the court. I just think uh, it's, it's just what she's done for that sport is phenomenal. And I will say, it's probably not going to happen, but there should be statues of Venus and Serena in Australia, at the French Open, in Wimbledon, at the U.S. Open. There should be statues at each one of those Grand Slams for what they have done uh, for this sport. I think that, like I said, right now, it's kind of hard for us to take the measure of because it's so new and fresh, but it, it's just immeasurable. Well, I think you and I will both be among the millions watching and waiting to see what happens as she closes out this remarkable chapter. William C. Roden of Anscape joining us tonight. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And one more note, as you might expect, Serena intends to go out in style beginning tonight. She'll be wearing a figure skating inspired outfit for comfort and freedom of movement featuring six layers, one for each of the titles she's won in Flushing Meadows. But that is not all. Her sneakers will feature 400 hand set diamonds and solid gold elements too. Going out in style indeed, we'll expect nothing less from Serena Williams. I don't think I can think. I won't try to tell lies. This blunt got me so high. Do you enjoy a glass of wine with dinner a few nights a week? Maybe a couple of beers with colleagues after work? You might think your drinking habits are pretty low risk. But according to our first guest, you might be wrong. Dr. Peter Butt is co-chair of the expert panel developing Canada's new low-risk alcohol drinking guidelines. He's a family doctor whose clinical and research work focuses on substance use disorders. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. The new guidelines that your panel is recommending to Health Canada may have surprised a lot of people this week. Low risk, you say, is just two drinks per week. How did you arrive at that number? Yes, I, I think people are probably going to be surprised at this. Uh, low risk would be one to two drinks, standard drinks uh, per week. And that would be giving people the, the health impact of those that are lifelong abstainers, which is the control group that we look at. So you, you tell me more about that. You've compared people who drink no alcohol whatsoever to people who drink various amounts? Yes, absolutely. So um, it, it's, it's a kind of a dense methodological process, but it, essentially what we did is uh, we looked at the current evidence updated from all of the work that the UK and Australia did in their update of the low, their lowest drinking guidelines, went through over 6,000 reviews, made sure that the evidence was very high grade and ensured that what we had was um, the best information in terms of the impact of alcohol on people's health. We were looking at 30 to 40 different conditions that are impacted by drinking alcohol. 
And then through uh, mathematical modeling, through the brilliance of Dr. Kevin Shields at CAMH in Toronto, we're able to determine where the risks were, what the risk thresholds were for consuming beverage alcohol compared to lifelong abstainers, not current abstainers, which includes sick quitters, but also, um, but more importantly, lifelong abstainers. So we could see what the, the actual impact of alcohol is on people's health and well-being. And we're surprised, quite frankly, that yes, one to two standard drinks per week would give you about the same um, health results as people who are lifelong abstainers. Once you start rising above that, three to six standard drinks per week in what we would term moderate risk, risk begins to increase. Yes, well, I was just going to, going above six, the current Health Canada guidelines say that up to 10 drinks a week for women and 15 drinks a week for men are low risk. So how do you assess that level of alcohol? Well, I was actually involved in the, in the development of those 2011 guidelines, and that was the best evidence that we had at that time. In the last decade, what we've found is that, in fact, number one, people even drinking at that previously considered low-risk level were coming to harm. We're developing cancer. We're developing heart disease from, from your alcohol use. Um, it's really quite startling, and this is uh, why the information needs to be presented to the Canadian public, that alcohol does have a deleterious impact on your health. It is not cardioprotective, and uh, people need to situate themselves in terms of how much they drink and uh, reflect on what they would like to do with that. You say it's, you mentioned uh, the cardiac effect because for many years people have been told in many cases by doctors themselves that a little bit of alcohol might be good for your heart. Your guidelines are saying that is not the case at all. What do we know specifically about the association between cardiovascular conditions and alcohol? Well, and it's just not our guidelines. The World Heart Federation in 2021, 2020, came out with a review and study that uh, blankly stated that alcohol was not good for your heart. So this has been looked at very closely by cardiologists uh, around the world. With regards to heart health, in the past, the, the reason it was thought to be cardioprotective is because so many people do die or have problems with, with heart disease. So um, what, the, but what they were comparing people to were the current abstainers. So they were comparing people who drink with people who were currently abstaining. But as I mentioned before, current abstainers include sick quitters. So within that group would be a large number of people who are too ill to drink, um, who can no longer drink, who are on medications that preclude using alcohol. Mm -hmm. So it would be an unhealthy comparison group. Hence the, the importance of using lifelong abstainers as the control. What about cancer and alcohol? Cancer and alcohol is another important uh, issue. With regards to it, uh, we know and we have known for years, if not decades, that alcohol is a class one carcinogen. And yet, interestingly enough, it's uh, sold to people, intended to be ingested, and very few people are aware of it, including healthcare providers. There are seven different types of cancers that are causally associated with alcohol. So 24% of breast cancer, for instance, is caused by alcohol, 20% of colon, 15% of rectal, 13% of liver. 
and other GI cancers, including the uh, mouth, the throat, the larynx, and the esophagus. But I guess it's the, the what people will wonder is, when you link alcohol to heart disease or cancer, it's a question of degree, is it not? Which is, I guess, where the importance of these guidelines come into play. Absolutely. It is a question of degree. Uh, health increase, health risks increase with the amount consumed. Hence, the, the risk zones that we're presenting or wish to present to the Canadian public and would like feedback on in this uh, current public consultation is this the best way of communicating this? It's not finger wagging and saying you must drink at this level. It's more a case of presenting what the risk zones are so people can situate themselves. Because in addition to the amount that they consume, they need to individualize their risk and look at, well, what is their cancer risk, for instance? What is their risk of heart disease? And in that broader health and wellness context, look at their relationship with alcohol and decide what role it should play, um, should they reduce. And the, the advice is, frankly, yes, it's, it's best to drink less. You know, as a human, you are almost daily calculating risk versus reward and everything from driving a car, certain intense sports that we play, even the way we eat our diet has some degree of risk. How would you rank drinking alcohol on that spectrum? Well, I think it's important to remember that alcohol is the leading preventable cause of death, disability, injuries, accidents, and social problems. So we have control over it. We may be compelled to assume the risk of driving to and from work, for example, but um, we're not compelled to drink alcohol unless, in fact, we, we have a real problem with it. So we, we have an opportunity here to choose to make changes in our lifestyle and, and thereby improve our health and wellness. You keep it going, man. You keep those books rolling. You, you pick up all those books that you're going to read and not remember, and you roll, man. You get that associate's degree, okay? Then you get your bachelor's. Then you get your master's. Then you get your master's, master's. Then you get your doctrine. You go, man. And then when everybody says quit, you show them those degrees, man. When everyone says, hey, you're not working, you're not making any money, you say, you look at my degrees and you look at my life. Yeah, I'm 52. So what? Hate all you want, but I'm smart. I'm so smart. And, and I'm in school. These guys are out here um, making money all these ways. And I'm spending mine to be smart. You know why? Because when I die, buddy, you know what's going to keep me warm? That's right, those degrees. Since he graduated from UMass Amherst in 2013, Shane O'Brien has been focused on paying back his student loan debt. Now his nine-year effort has gotten a big boost from President Biden, who last week signed off on a loan forgiveness program of $10,000 per borrower for those making under $125,000 a year. Shane is elated that he qualifies, telling me it's good because it will wipe out about 2,000 of my remaining federal loans. However, that doesn't mean he's debt-free. Like some of the $43 million burdened by student loan debt, his major expense are private student loans. Still, Shane is currently in a much better position than a lot of student loan borrowers who, on average, carry $41,000 of debt. That's 52000 for black borrowers. 
but just four years ago, his struggle to manage his debt landed him in the Brockton Enterprise newspaper. His story made news when he attempted to persuade his employer, the city of Brockton, to allow him to waive the residential living requirement. With Excel sheets in hand, Shane explained to Brockton City Council members his plan to move in with his parents in Newport, Rhode Island, so he could live rent-free and apply the savings to pay down his debt. Three city councilors voted yes, but the six-member majority said no. I took notice of Shane's story back in 2018 and recently followed up with him. A year after the council's no vote, he left his Brockton staff planner job for a better paying and more advanced position as Everett's land use planner. Next stop, Framingham, where he moved up to senior planner. He and the woman who became his fiance moved in together and shared expenses. And he kept making payments during the government-sanctioned payment pause, which began in March 2020, a pause President Biden has announced will continue through the end of this year. With sacrifice and career success, Shane successfully trimmed 15000 of his $70,000 in private loans, in addition to a near payoff of his $8,000 federal loan, despite rising interest rates, which he says drive profiteering in student loans. He had longed hoped for the cap on interest rates that is part of the Biden loan forgiveness plan. Five months ago, Shane O'Brien moved up another career rung as Bridgewater's town planner, the top planning job in the city. He's doing work he describes as his calling. He and his now wife are active citizens in Taunton, where they have purchased a home. Two life passages, he knows, many of his debt-saddled former college classmates have been forced to delay. While he's glad so many will get relief from the president's long forgiveness, he admits this is not a permanent solution. Callie Crossley, GBH, Boston's local NPR. The farmer in the dell, the farmer in the dell. Hi ho the dairy, oh the farmer in the dell. For decades last century, racism in the federal government's loan programs for farmers drove many black farmers deep into debt. Many lost their land. And that is one reason why last year's pandemic relief package included billions of dollars in loan forgiveness for black and other minority farmers. But then that federal program run by the Department of Agriculture got ensnared in lawsuits. As NPR's Adrian Florido reports, the program's fate says a lot about the challenges in President Biden's promise to pursue racial justice in government. Jasmine Ratliff was thrilled last year when the loan forgiveness program got through Congress. There was a glimmer of hope there once we saw in the legislation that this debt relief would be for black farmers. She's a farmer who leads the National Black Food and Justice Alliance. It was clear, she says, who would get loans forgiven. The legislation was specifically race-based, and in order for legislation to correct race-based discrimination, it has to be explicit. But then white farmers in several states sued. A judge put the program on hold. Fast forward to earlier this month when Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act. It repealed that debt relief program for black and other minority farmers and replaced it with one that makes no mention of race, aiming instead to help, quote, distressed farmers and those who've experienced, quote, discrimination. Ratliff and many black farmers are angry. 
there's been a blatant watering down of the language, the vagueness of that language. It leaves black farmers expected to trust the USDA to actually ensure that black farmers receive the debt relief in which they are due. That's because who gets loans forgiven will depend now on how the USDA defines discrimination. If it's expanded beyond race, many black farmers fear the program won't be effective in atoning for the USDA's racist history. In a call with reporters last week, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack said the agency has not started discussing who will qualify. On the discrimination side, I think it's we just have not had a chance to meet as a team to have any conversation about precisely how that program would be structured. It's something we're going to want to think carefully about. Kim Ford Mazrui directs the University of Virginia's Center for the Study of Race and Law. He's not surprised that once it got tangled up in lawsuits, the government replaced a race-based program with one that is race-neutral. It's safer to use race-neutral language. The trend in the courts has been to strike down race-explicit policies, he says. That's requiring the government to find workarounds, like using eligibility criteria that serve as proxies for race, things like income. So it's a kind of compromise. It's more politically palatable. It's legally safer. Uh, but it, it definitely makes it less effective at addressing the race-specific harm of racial discrimination. In his first official act as president, Joe Biden signed an executive order to advance racial equity across the federal government. But the fate of the loan forgiveness program for black farmers shows the kind of legal hurdles that federal agencies face when they try to do that. Dorothy Brown is a law professor at Emory University. Anytime in this climate with this Supreme Court, you're trying to help folks of color, you're going to get a lawsuit against you. That should not stop the government from aggressively pursuing that goal, she says. Though in this case, she acknowledges it may be seeking a pragmatic solution. A program targeting black farmers is useless if the courts throw it out. A well-designed race-neutral program may achieve similar goals. They should be able to figure out a way to prioritize those who the USDA has acknowledged having discriminated against. Melanie Allen is program director for the Black Farmer Fund. It helps black farmers find grants and other types of non-traditional low-interest loans that don't saddle them with unpayable debt. She says she's hopeful the USDA will find a way to target its loan forgiveness to black farmers. But at the same time, we're, we're not naive and we're not going to be putting all of our eggs in one basket, hoping for the USDA to all of a sudden truly liberate and serve the needs of black farmers. Black people's farms are still at stake, she says, and it's why black farmers are organizing to find new ways to save them. Adrian Florido, NPR News. Travis, you know that money we got in the mail this morning? Yes, sir. Well, what do you think your grandmama done went and done? I don't know, Grandma. Well, she went and she bought you a house. Rising mortgage rates and lingering inflation are forcing many Americans to put plans to buy a home on hold. That, in turn, is pushing up rent prices for others. And no one has experienced that more, more acutely, rather, over the last year than people of color. As economics correspondent Paul Salman explains, as part of our series, Race Matters. After a lifetime of performing the world over, Lily Adams, 74, is back in her hometown. One of more than 59 million Americans, 18% of us, living with family, her daughter and son-in-law in suburban Detroit. But she needs her own place, and it better be a house. 
I can't like stay in any apartment because I make noise, you know, I have to play. If you have an apartment, you'll be making too much noise for the neighbors, is that it? I need a place like this place, <laughs> if possible. And I probably would teach, go back doing some teaching too. And nobody wants to hear that. Adam says she can afford a $100,000 home in the up until recently bargain basement Detroit market. There are houses to be found. The, the, the problem is finding the financing for these houses. That's because of spiking mortgage rates, which have doubled in a year. They started incrementally going up, 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 till it, it reached a tipping point and making it just impossible. Enough money for a fat down payment, of course, and rates wouldn't matter so much. But black Americans like Adams were actively prevented for decades from building home equity, the bulk of the wealth base for most other middle-income Americans. From the 1930s to the 60s, the federal government embarked in redlining, which was a racially explicit housing policy that provided home loans to white families and denied those same loans to black families. Thus, says housing researcher Raheem Hanifa, a Detroiter himself, blacks have too little equity to cash in for a down payment. And now, suddenly, the mortgage rate spike. You'll see that there's been a decline of 52% in home affordability uh, for black households. Even in bargain basement, 77% black Detroit? Detroit is one of those cities that is no longer affordable to low-income families. Like the family of post office employee Angela Smith, renting the last four years. She needs to put down only 3.5% because of a government program, but she explains... You know, you try to stay on top of the bills that you already have, and then you're trying to save money to buy a house. I mean, do you not eat? Do you not pay your rent? Then gas went up to $5. So what do you do? You not put gas in your car to go to work? The interest rate surge is killing her budget already. What's more, Smith needs that car just to get to her job. And the interest rate on that car is terrible. It's like 19.9%. I'm paying on that car. I'm paying six, four, 659 a month for this car. Mortgage rates are crushing folks like Smith. Best offer we could find online for a $100,000 house, her 640 credit score, a 15-year mortgage with a 6.3% interest rate, $788 a month on a salary of less than 40000 a year before taxes, union dues, etc. But of course, it's not just for homeowners of color that mortgage rates are discouraging. Samantha Masheri, for instance. We've set a budget, and now with interest rates, you know, every few weeks to a month or so going up, and us not finding a home every few weeks to a month, it, you know, it makes us want to stay where we're at and not, you know, got, not get in this rat race. I'm Ed Butler. If you're new to the channel, I make videos about living, working, sleeping, eating, and playing in Detroit. Local real estate agent Ed Butler takes to YouTube to help buyers navigate the Detroit market. But with the new mortgage rates, says Butler. For buyers who are shopping in a certain price range, um, they, they no longer can afford their payments. So they're you know deciding to either rent or just stop their search at all. Ah, deciding to rent. That's the less told story of higher mortgage rates. Nationwide, the median rent is up 24% in the past year to about $1,900. 
a record high for the 16th straight month. With interest rates going up so dramatically, there are fewer people looking to, to get a mortgage and more people who are currently renters ending up staying renters. Peter Hepburn of the Princeton Eviction Lab. And that means more competition for a limited set of, of rental housing. And this is an added problem for those just getting by in an era where increasingly landlords are investors. The share of uh, new purchases uh, for of rental housing that are um, coming from investors has been increasing steadily uh, over the last decade. The problem is those investors have few qualms about raising rents and thus more evictions. And evictions are picking up in Detroit, including among smaller landlords, like the one this tenants group has organized to resist. I'm being evicted for a late payment in rent in April. 32-year-old David Cheveria is a sanitation worker in Detroit's sewage industry. He paid his rent, but... Basically what their lawyer said was, uh, now I'm causing a ruckus in the building. Well, are you causing a ruckus? Yes, we were resisting rent raises based off of the condition of the building. The elevator was out for eight months. And uh, for us that live on the fourth floor, that's, that's pretty, pretty significant. Fact is, says Cheveria. A lot of people on our street can't afford to pay the increases in rent. But because of the hot rental market, others can. 71-year-old Louis Bass, a retired chef, has lived here for 15 years but recently, new management took over. So they're just trying to force you out. We are being forced out to be replaced by somebody who's willing to come in and tolerate the conditions as they are. Fewer people going on to buy their homes means more people staying renters, means more competition for limited apartments. Even in iffy conditions. The new management's response? Inflation is killing everybody right now, so you have to continue to raise rents on a regular basis. Otherwise, you wither and die. The landlord says he fixed the elevator and insists that the only evictions are for non-payment of rent. Meanwhile, in recent weeks, as interest rates continued to climb, housing prices have finally stopped rising. In the market, we've started to see a lot more price decreases and price drops. Um, than we have in the last few years. So naturally, that average price point is going to either stabilize or pull back. Again, Detroit realtor Ed Butler. The rest of the country is kind of experiencing a slight cool off us. We're doing it a lot more um, because we have a little bit more inventory than the rest of the uh, country does. So good for buyers like Samantha Machery? We go to see these houses and we're finally crunching numbers and saying, okay, we want to do this, we want to do that, we like this house, yada, yada, yada. Then you get to the point where your interest rate is now, you know, two and three percent higher than what we're currently paying. So is it really going down or is it just kind of shifting over? You know, so who are we paying more to? The, the seller or the mortgage company? Though I guess if you buy now and mortgage rates eventually go down, you could refinance at a lower rate. So might not give hope to those like Lily Adams. Do you think you'll be able to buy a place? Yes, eventually, yes, I believe so. How so? I mean, is it just because you're that kind of person? I'm that kind of person. Let's wish her luck. For the PBS NewsHour, Paul Salmon, enjoying my first interview concert, as I hope you are. That was an unfortunate incident in a child's life, and nothing that you can build 
can erase the stress that these children are under post-Katrina. I work in the school system with these kids. These kids, are, these kids are still traumatized by Katrina. Some of these kids have moved six, seven, eight times since the hurricane. Some of these kids really have not been given the type of medical treatment that they need from a psychological standpoint to really deal with this storm and deal with this hurricane, what it did. You know, we, we have a generation of kids that's traumatized and just going through the motions. 17 years ago, Hurricane Katrina devastated the city of New Orleans. The storm caused more than $100 billion in property damage and more than 1,800 lives were lost. The hurricane also wrought a huge emotional toll. Many of those who lived through the storm were children at the time and traumatized by the experience. Sorry. It's okay. Just take your time. It's okay. Like, wait. So, um, wait. So, like, um, have you ever like talked about this before? No, I haven't. Her story and others are captured in the new HBO documentary Katrina Babies. Now, as adults, they share how they've dealt with the pain and anguish caused by the storm, the inequities of the recovery since then, and Katrina's indelible mark on our nation's history. The filmmaker, Edward Buckles Jr., is a native son of New Orleans, and he joins us now. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Where did this idea come from to collect the stories of the youngest people affected by Katrina? Um, a story that I wanted to tell was, was one that drew parallels between what happened in 2005 and what was currently happening with the young people in New Orleans, which was, you know, a lot of um, trauma surfacing. So that's where the initial idea came from. You know, I just wanted to um, draw those parallels because it seemed like we were getting blamed for the way that our trauma was surfacing. Hmm. The clip we played, you talking to your friend, Maisha, and you ask her, has anyone ever asked you these questions about how you feel? And she says no. That was pretty common among the folks that you spoke to, that they really hadn't processed this ongoing trauma. How, how can that be? I mean, that was the question I came away with, was how can that be that this trauma has been overlooked for some 17 years now? When you ask me um, how this can happen, you know, first of all, I think that children are often an afterthought when it comes to um, traumas and big disasters anyway. But when it comes to black children, I think that that it's, 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 it's just, you know, amplified, right? And, you know, I'm only left to assume that you know, it's because of the fact that, you know, there's a lack of empathy and love for black people, because as a child, when I'm not asked, you know, about one of the deadliest, you know, disasters or hurricanes that ever, you know, came to America, it just makes me think that no one cares. The effects of Katrina, as we mentioned, are ongoing. Following the storm, there were so many people who were displaced in New Orleans, and this comes through in the documentary a sense of place is defining for people. The neighborhood that you grew up in, the ward that you come from, is connected to people's identities. And so much of that now doesn't exist anymore. I mean, how, how does that manifest uh, right now? So when you strip that away from a child, as well as stripping away their neighborhoods, you know, currently we have people, well, we have natives who are being displaced within New Orleans because of gentrification and because their rent is becoming so high. So, you know, you're dealing with, you know, children who don't even understand where they come from because their parents have been displaced. And, you know, if you don't know who you are and if you don't know 
you know, where you come from, how can you possibly know where you're going? So I think that we're dealing with a big, you know, identity, you know, situation in New Orleans when it comes to, you know, just how much we're moving around and how much we're being displaced, you know, um, mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're kind of all over the place right now. How has the aftermath of the storm these past 17 years, how has it affected you? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. When you watch this documentary, um, I am all throughout of it, right? You know, I am, I am, I am the thread that you know holds it together when it comes to story. And what's interesting is that it took me seven years to make this film, but I didn't include myself in, in it until year six. And that was because of the fact that you know I was resistant, and you know I didn't think that I had trauma because I was always like, well, you know, I I evacuated, I didn't stay during the storm. But you know what I learned by making this film was that trauma is trauma and that, you know, I did have trauma and like I learned that recently. So when I say it was important for, you know, tools and resources to be put into place so that children could have the information to know how to deal with the trauma once it surfaced later in their lives, with me, it surfaced at 29, right? Mm. And I didn't really know how I didn't really know how to deal with it on my own. So now I'm just in a place where I'm just being gentle, gentle with myself. I'm having grace with myself. And, you know, I'm actually learning from this film. I'm actually learning from this process, you know, that like I still have some healing to do from Hurricane Katrina and from, you know, just growing up in a disenfranchised black community in New Orleans. So, you know, I've acknowledged it. I've, I've, I've accepted it. So now it's up to me to go and, you know, seek the healing that I need. Edward Buckles Jr., I appreciate you. appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me today. The HBO documentary film Katrina Babies is available on HBO and HBO Max. I've lost a lot of sleep to dream. Insomniac, bad dreams got me losing sleep. I'm dead tired, my mind playing tricks. California this year, high school students can sleep in a bit more. A new state law says public high schools cannot start before 8.30 in the morning. And that's because research shows that teens need more sleep than adults, up to 10 hours a night. Most of them, though, they're not getting it. And that could be a problem for their physical and mental health. We're going to talk about this now with Heather Turgeon. She's a psychotherapist and co-author of the book Generation Sleepless, Why Tweens and Teens Aren't Sleeping Enough and How We Can Help Them. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. So the average adult gets between seven and eight hours of sleep a night, or that's the goal at least. And teens optimally need more than that, nine to ten maybe. Why do they need more sleep than adults? Yeah, that's a good question. So the thing to know about teens is that they are experiencing an absolutely massive amount of brain reconstruction and refining. This is something, you know, people used to think that the first decade of life was really where all the important stuff happened, but it turns out that the second decade of life is so pivotal for development. And so a teenager's brain is rapidly pruning and refining and really important work is happening. And with that, you know, high development comes a high need for sleep, just like when they were, you know, no one, no one doubts the 
the importance of sleep for toddlers, we know how much Mm. they're growing and changing. So we know that they need so much sleep. It's the same for teenagers. Right. And anyone who's had a teenager can attest that there are a lot of similarities between them and toddlers. (laughs) True. (laughs) So so all of that brain reconstructing and refining is happening as they sleep? A lot of it is happening while they sleep. And it's also this, this kind of time of, you know, rest and reconstruction, the, the brain is, um, pruning a lot of the pruning is when the, the connections between neurons are fading away and other ones are becoming stronger. That pruning process happens during sleep. And so we, we consider eight hours of sleep to be adequate sleep, but nine to 10 to be optimal sleep. Okay. And it's fair to say that most teenagers don't get that nine to 10. Correct. How much are they getting? So around 80% of teenagers are not even getting that basic eight hours of sleep, that bare minimum amount of sleep. That's so the majority are not even sleeping that much, but the average U S high schooler is getting around six hours of sleep per night. So considering that they optimally would like to have nine, but they're getting six means they're missing, you know, two or three hours of sleep every night of the school week. Oh, wow. Can they make it up on the weekends? They can't make it up on the weekends. That's a really good question. And that's a dilemma that we, we definitely hear from a lot of families because when you sleep in on the weekends, first of all, it feels really good when you do it and you feel, you know, the next morning you're like, oh, I feel much better. And that's great. Mm-hmm but it throws you into what we call social jet lag to where your brain clock is now pretty dysregulated and confused. So we really can't make up for it with a lot of sleep on the weekend. It's not like a bank that we just pull out and then we put a lot Mm -hmm. back in. Mm -hmm. So what happens if teens are getting six hours a night? What happens to their cognitive function? Well, you know, one of the things that's happening is that the area of the brain called the amygdala is becoming more active and the prefrontal cortex of the brain is becoming less active. And what that leads to is more reactivity. It just, it's a feeling of being more, more stressed and seeing the world through more negative eyes. So this is part of why mental health and sleep are so connected. Um, So a lot's going on in the brain when we're sleep deprived, but one of the things that really, you know, is magnified is our negative emotions and it also raises our risk for cardiovascular disease. It could just raises inflammation and stress. So all those things that we know comes with inflammation over time. It's like, um, that's really bad for long-term health. Well, a lot of ink has been spilled and words have been spilled on the air about social media's contribution to teens feeling anxious and depressed and lonely and everything else. But you're saying it's also sleep deprivation, but I imagine the two are intertwined. Like one of the reasons why teens are sleep deprived is because they are on social media Mm -hmm. at night. Yeah, that's really true. So social media basically preys on the, the social, the socially wired brain of the teenager. They want to be engaged. They want to know what their friends are doing. They want to be connected and it's, you know, it's why it's they become very vulnerable to not being able to shut that off and then not being able to shut their brains off at night. And when teens are engaged to such a high degree, it's partly about the, you know, we hear about the blue light and all that stuff, but it's also just that feeling of, I need to know what people are doing and I need to be involved and be aware that it doesn't allow sleep to take over. So what should we do as parents to try to help them 
get off social media so they can get a good night's sleep? Well, one of the things that we tell parents of even fifth graders and middle schoolers is not to let go of your healthy sleep habits. So in the book, we have five um, habits of healthy sleepers. And we really try to get to people early and say, you know, I know there's this big push towards getting more technology and lots of fifth graders have phones and don't let go of your healthy sleep habits when they're younger. And, you know, even just having a bedtime research shows that having a bedtime, just this is a simple fact of having a bedtime lowers your risk of depression as a teenager. And then as they get older and we're holding, you know, we're handing over that role to them, we want to inspire their own motivation to sleep well, because of course we can't do it for them. So we really try to get parents to listen to what their kids are saying and what they care about. Because if you really are a good listener and then you model healthy habits yourself, so, you know, things like not having technology in the bedroom yourself and prioritize sleep for yourself, that has a really big effect. Yeah, I know. It's hard for adults to put down the phone at Mm -hmm. night. I I can imagine how much harder it is for teens. What about the fact that so many of our teens have so much homework? Is that another factor? It is. Yeah. So we, in the book, we describe what we call a perfect storm. And, you know, the first piece of that storm is that the teenage brain clock is actually delayed by two hours. So teens do not legitimately feel tired for about two hours um, later than adults and little kids. And they also, on the flip side, do not want to wake up in the morning for about two hours after. So it makes a lot of sense that they, you know, these early start times have been an issue. So there's that. And then there's the homework. Um, and then there's activities and all the things they need to do for college and then technology and then early start times on the, on the morning end. So their sleep is basically squeezed from both sides. When we do talks at high schools, we are really advocating for teachers and principals to think about the amount of homework they assign because research really shows one hour is, you know, it has intellectual benefit, but beyond that, we're just adding stress and we're not really adding, you know, an academic benefit and we're detracting from sleep. So Hmm. yes, homework is definitely an issue. And we, we didn't write generation sleepless to point the finger at parents and teens. We actually wrote it to be a, you know, a call out to society because sleep in this case is a community effort. You know, teenagers need support from sports coaches. They need to hear about this, you know, from, from their high school teachers, from their coaches, and everyone needs to come together to play their part. Yeah. Yeah, because often you'll have a teenager who's involved in an after-school activity like a sport. They won't get home from practice or a game until, what, like six or seven? Right. Then they eat dinner, and then they start their homework. Mm -hmm. And then by that time, it could be 10 or 11, and they're just finishing up. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think that's what we call the sleep comes last (laughs) mentality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like sleep is the thing that's left over at the end of the day when all other things are, are done. Hmm. So what is the ideal sleep pattern for a teenager? If a teenager could design society to imitate his or her sleep pattern, what would that look like? It would probably look like um, winding down around nine or so and going to bed and falling asleep at maybe 10 or 11. So sleep moves later around age 12 and it, it, gets the, the, the high point of that is around age 19 or 20. Mm. 
So that's when the brain clock is, is shifted the most. And, you know, eight hours is a minimum requirement for, for health, for, you know, development. So eight hours is about a tipping is a tipping point. So when we sleep mm -hmm. under eight hours, when teens sleep under eight hours, that's where you see these big correlations in, you know, mental health outcomes and so forth. So it, it really depends if you want optimal sleep for teens, then they're going to sleep for a nine hours starting at maybe 10. And wow. if we're looking at, I know, well, I have to I say, think, I don't know a single teenager who goes to bed before all. midnight. No, like, that's, they're yeah. just getting started at 10. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, and on the weekends we can see that they sleep for 12 hours. Sometimes, you know, they can just keep going. So I think in high school, you know, a reasonable bedtime is 10 or 11 and just getting a bare minimum of eight hours of sleep. We would love that. We'd love to see that. So at least till seven. Right. Yep. Okay. Well, hopefully this will inspire. How do you pry the social media out of their hands though at 11? you, you kind of can't, and this is why we have to tap into their own motivation. So, you know, we really want to talk to them about how it feels when, you know, how, what they prioritize, what, what's important to them and how can sleep help them. And I've found that, you know, of course, no teen likes to be told what to do, but most teens like to feel good and feel healthy and happy and actually a lot of them are really interested in knowing what's going on in their brains. So I think that having talks with them about this and saying, oh, I read this interesting article and emailing it to them instead of just mm -hmm. trying to, you know, pry it out of their hands is going to work better. Okay. Maybe mm -hmm. they will have listened to this conversation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Heather, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I would have thought uh, we would have taken advantage or at least especially uh, people that have children. Uh, it seems like I've been hearing more of complaints from um, uh, black parents. Um, you know, I work in telecommunications, and um, so I deal with a lot of the uh, customers firsthand. So I know all of the stuff that's going on as far as with um, the whole situation around um, being able to get um, and deliver internet service uh, to uh, black people, um, you know, the pandemic kind of exposed all that, um, the lack of internet access uh, most black people have. And it just seems like um, I just heard more complaints. Um, we don't know how to maximize, um, even in, in chaos, um, there is a silver lining. And, you know, at least um, in the beginning, I noticed that when we were in lockdown, and people were having to um, be forced to stay home and keep their kids home. You didn't have any, hardly any stories of, you know, black kids being terrorized at school or anything like that. I mean, you, you hear some little things on Zoom calls, but nothing like we, we had grown accustomed to over the years, over the past 13 years. Uh, the stories that we hear uh, of the verbal, physical, assaults that these kids are having to be subjected to. Um, like I said, I don't have kids, so I may have my um, biases, but I just, you know, I have nieces and nephews, and I, I just I just don't see a, a lot of black parents just trying to um, take advantage of out of chaos, um, 
you know, to some degree, because I guess some of us are still walking around confused. As we reported, new test results show a significant drop in test scores and learning for elementary school age children in the United States. The decline in reading and math for nine-year-olds were the largest in several decades. Math scores dropped even more among black students, and the declines were sharpest among students still struggling with very basic math skills and simple reading. This all comes amid great concern about learning loss, what should be done, and how schools and politicians responded. John Yang has a conversation about that very issue recorded before these latest numbers were made public. It has been a long road back for many schools and families since March 2020 when the pandemic shut things down. Most went to remote learning, in some cases for more than a year. While some students, teachers, and families liked it, many others didn't, and there were deep divisions over when to fully reopen in-person learning. Anya Kamenetz, a longtime education reporter for NPR and herself a parent, has chronicled that period and its wider impact in a new book, The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. Anya, thanks so much uh, for joining us. What do we know now? What can we say about the learning loss that that uh, students and children uh, experienced during the during the pandemic? They're really concerning, especially when you consider that the 2021-2022 school year was not the recovery year that many had hoped. Chronic absenteeism continued, as did shutdowns from Omicron, and so the latest numbers suggest that for elementary school students it would be three more years at this pace before they would sort of pick up um, their expected trajectory of math and reading. And for middle school students, sadly, um, the picture is even bleaker. It may take even longer than that. Is that something that's likely to be with us for a while? You say three more years, but even beyond that, uh, are there ripple effects from that? Absolutely. I mean, we're speaking about averages here, but but students are not averages. They're individuals. And to me, the biggest area of concern is students that disengage and go on the path to dropping out altogether. We've already seen a big downturn in college going rates in big cities, for example, in Los Angeles, which has been pretty forthcoming about this. They said that they were missing 50,000 students on the first day of classes. They don't know where many of those kids are. Are they enrolled somewhere else or have they dropped out and gone into paid work? That's the really concerning area to me. What to do about schools and and when to come back was such a contentious issue for so long. Uh, are there, looking back, are, are there ways this could have been handled better? You know, uh, I was in the privileged position of being an education reporter at the beginning of shutdown, and I knew that the consequences would be really serious, even if shutdowns lasted only a few weeks. As the, uh, the year continued, and I saw the lack of leadership for, on so many levels, really a full-throated endorsement from the public health authorities on the importance of in-person school was not forthcoming. We did see that in other countries, and that's how our peer nations, particularly in Europe, really committed to reopening despite the fact that they were dealing with surges and waves. And they reopened schools in preference to other public accommodations. And of course, in the U.S., we really took two paths. Red states opened up everything with almost no restrictions. And many blue states actually opened up businesses, bars, restaurants, without opening up the schools full time. And what was the effect of that? I mean, you talk about sort of the the, the red red states, blue states, and so much of the pandemic was uh, politically tinged. 
talk about how that affected this this debate about about what to do about schools. Oh my gosh! I mean, it, it affected it terribly because uh, the the rhetoric, you know, following President Trump was really that we needed to get back to normal and kind of ignore precautions or that precautions were not important, and that did not build a lot of trust. So I personally spoke to teachers in Georgia, in Florida, in Texas, who were terrified about going back to school um, without precautions in place. On the other side of things, in blue states, it seemed like almost in reaction to that, there formed this attitude that, you know, we should have zero COVID before we go back to school. And that really led to, I think, terribly detrimental impacts on children um, as the pandemic dragged on. And so it just seemed harder and harder to uh, understand why schools would be subject to restrictions that were not seen in other parts of society. And another sort of uh, thing that was accentuated during the pandemic was the uh, was inequality. Uh, how did the differences in in uh, in race and socioeconomic uh, status uh, in geography? You talked about the red states, blue uh, blue states, but how did that affect students and and their experiences in the pandemic? You know, John, this started the day that schools shut down because the school food program is the second largest public food program in the country. It feeds 30 million kids. And when it switched to handing out sandwiches in parking lots, a lot of kids went hungry. In fact, um, hunger soared to levels that researchers told me were unprecedented in modern times in the very quick weeks uh, right after the school shutdowns. As it dragged on, what we saw was that you know, communities of color, Black and Hispanic and Asian American communities were more cautious about the virus. They suffered more deaths from the virus because they had essential workers in their households, intergenerational households. And that fed into a sense of generally mistrust and oftentimes an unwillingness to come back to school in person. Um, and so that led to disparities in who actually had access to and confidence in in-person learning. Uh, Anya, you're from New Orleans, I believe. You covered Hurricane Katrina. Are there any parallels between what happened to school children uh, and the effects uh, of, of, of Hurricane Katrina and the pandemic? Yes, this is a situation that I've looked at uh, for parallels. You know, when you think about school shutdowns in the modern era, we're talking about epidemics, natural disasters, and civil wars. And in the United States, the only modern day analog is really, I believe, the hurricane in 2005 that closed public schools in that city for uh, almost the full semester. And uh, what I learned from following is that the impact on those children in learning, they caught up in a couple of years, those who re-enrolled in the city of New Orleans. But in trauma, in their life trajectory, you can see the impact on high school graduation and college going rates 10 years afterwards. For this book, on you followed some individual families uh, across the country. What stands out to you from your reporting? Um, so there were so many different paths that families followed, even within the same family. And um, a child that I think about a lot is um, was seven years old when the pandemic hit, and he is the middle child of eight siblings uh, growing up in St. Louis. And when schools and daycares closed, his mother had to go to her essential job and oftentimes lock the door on the kids. And one day he got out and he climbed into the window of an abandoned house nearby and was shot in the leg by a young man who was inside. Um, and thankfully he recovered, but there are so many children whose stories we may not even know because they were not seen and they were unsafe during the pandemic school closures. The book is The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. The author, Anya Kamenetz. Thank you very much, Anya. Thank you so much. 
Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. For the first time in a century, the life expectancy of Americans has dropped for two years in a row. That sobering fact comes from a provisional analysis out today from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. As NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports, the driving force of this trend is COVID-19, but there's more to the story. Life expectancy in the U.S. has been on a forward march for decades, ticking up a bit year after year, all the way up to 79 years in 2019. The pandemic brought that march to a sudden halt. In 2020, life expectancy dropped to 77 years. And in 2021, it dropped again to 76 years. Dr. Stephen Wolf calls these numbers disturbing. He's a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. In most other high-income countries, 2021 was a year where life expectancy began to rebound. Having that context makes the U.S. results all the more tragic. There are some striking racial disparities in the data. Elizabeth Aria of CDC's National Center for Health Statistics, who was the lead author of the report, says the most dramatic drop in life expectancy was among American Indian or Alaska Native people. To see that the decline over the two-year period for this population was 6.6 years was jarring. She notes life expectancy for that population is now 65 years, the same as it was for the whole population in the 1940s. But there is a bit of good news in the data. For the Hispanic population and the non-Hispanic Black population, who both lost a lot of years during the first year of the pandemic, the loss was a lot smaller during the second year. For white Americans, life expectancy actually dropped more in 2021 than in 2020, even though vaccines and treatments became available. Now, if you take a step back, the U.S. wasn't doing very well on life expectancy compared to other countries even before the pandemic, says John Haga. He's a retired division director at the National Institute on Aging, part of NIH. We're now behind countries like Slovenia, Costa Rica, and Greece. He laments that nobody seems to get fired up about changing things to help Americans live longer. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I've always wanted to live in a house like yours, my friend. Maybe when there's nobody home, I'll break in. It feels real good to walk streets again after being in jail doing 7 to 10. Will you be mine? Won't you be mine? I wish you was my neighbor. More than a quarter of American adults say they live in fear of being attacked in their own neighborhoods. That's according to a poll by NPR, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. NPR's Alana Wise reports. Americans of color were more likely than white people to say they feared being threatened or physically attacked. 19% of white Americans say they had this concern, compared to 25 and 26% of black and Latino respondents. 21% of Asian adults shared that concern. None, however, said they lived in fear more than Native Americans, of whom 36% said they were fearful for their personal safety. You know, growing up, I went through the era when it was, you know, just open racism about being Alaska Native. Paul Altaguk is an Inuit man living in Anchorage. 
He said that because many people are unfamiliar with the appearance of Alaskan natives, they often make crude guesses and stereotypes about his race. This one was really weird. I was in Philadelphia. Somebody asked me if I was an octorine. I had to look it up. Reports of hate crimes have spiked in recent years. This includes recent violent attacks on Asian Americans and the racist massacre at a Buffalo grocery store. At 65, Ongtaguk says he thinks he's aged out of some of the more overt attacks that pockmarked his youth. But he still fears for younger family members. I like to think at, at some point people just realize, oh, that's just an older person. No reason they get all in somebody's face. Annette Jackson is also in her mid-60s, living 4,000 miles southeast in Texas. In her small town, Jackson, who is mixed race, says that her concerns have only grown in recent years. She has black, white, Hispanic, and Native American ancestry, and says she presents as a woman of color. I would hesitate to call the police in fear they shoot me instead of the person I'm calling the police on. There are people that ride around with the Confederate flag hanging off the back of their trucks. You know, I don't feel safe in America. Jackson says she noticed it, especially after the 2016 presidential race. The night after Donald Trump's victory, Jackson says a man assaulted her in Walmart. He said Trump won and then he spit in my face. Oh, my God. It's like Trump won, so they had a right to treat me any kind of way. Jackson's example was extreme, but indicative of the sort of fray in social norms that appears to be fueling widespread fear. For Bernardo Medina, his view on the root cause of these tensions is the opposite. The criminals are empowered, and the good people have to live in fear. Medina is a Puerto Rican-born American living in New Jersey. He says he fears greatly for national security and blamed Democrats in power for endangering the public. Medina pointed to the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests as proof of social discord. They deceived a lot of people with their nice talk and then took the money. So it's all a hoax. It's all a game. These protests, however, were overwhelmingly peaceful and came in response to state violence against black people. Ernesto is a black man living in the suburbs of Philadelphia. He requested to only be identified by his first name. He said that in his 37 years of life, he has never seen the public discourse dissolve this badly. I never felt discriminated against. I knew it existed, but I never felt it directly against me. Whereas now, I'm afraid that it will be because you hear about it so much more and so often. Ernesto said he and his wife have begun stockpiling supplies since the pandemic. And in recent years, he has taken firearm safety classes to prepare himself in the event that he might have to use his gun. I think the pandemic made me realize that we haven't made the progress that we did before. There's no such thing as the truth or fact anymore. And that's scary. The poll was conducted between June and July and included a sample of 4,192 adults. Alana Wise, NPR News, Washington. I used to be afraid of Bull. I discovered he was crazy. When I discovered he was crazy, my whole attitude changed. Al Hibble on the trailway bus he was on the corner. All of them put us in jail and put us in the paddy wagon. So Al Hibble was standing up beside the building like this. And Bull looked over and said, hey, go on and get that blind nigga and break him over here. <laughs> see, see y'all funny this insane man was? Well, I mean, that's he hollering across the street. 
Bring that blind nigga over here. Now, here's a blind man. He doesn't understand human nature enough to relate to a blind person. Who like that? You wonder what makes people like that tick. Now to the black pastor arrested by Alabama police as he was watering his neighbor's garden while they were out of town. T.J. Holmes is with us now and what Pastor Michael Jennings is saying after the ordeal. Good morning. Uh, all right, Stray. Um, driving while black, walking while black, golfing while black, swimming while black, napping while black, staying in an Airbnb while black, sitting in a Starbucks while black, bird watching while black. This become a part of our vernacular here. And look, you and I talked about plenty of these stories here. Add to this now, watering your neighbor's plants while black. That's what this pastor was doing, and police were called on him. And now we have this police body cam video that shows how he goes from literally a water hose to handcuffs in just a couple of minutes. I ain't did nothing suspicious or nothing wrong. Listen. Told him I'm a pastor. I pastor until I don't hear you want to lock me up, lock me up. This newly released police body camera video shows the arrest of an Alabama pastor who was watering his neighbor's plants. Do what you got to do. Go on and lock me up. This past spring, Pastor Michael Jennings was doing a favor for a neighbor who'd asked him to water their plants while they were out of town. But police arrived and started questioning him. This vehicle is not supposed to be here and you're not supposed to be here. Who's saying I'm Pastor Jennings. I live across the street. You're Pastor Jennings? Yes, I'm looking out for their house while they're gone. Okay. Uh, Water they fly. Okay. Well, that's cool. Do you have like ID? And I don't all? know, man. I'm not gonna give you no ID. Why not? I ain't did nothing wrong. And if you're not one to identify yourself, uh, who called y'all? That's what we got to figure out. I ain't did nothing Hello. suspicious Listen. or nothing wrong. Listen. Told him I'm a pastor. Listen. I pastor until I don't hear. Sir, you wanna lock me up? Lock me up. We're, we're just trying to talk to you, man. Come here. Look, man. Let me see your phone. Let me see your phone, dude. Just calm down. Okay? No, no. Stop. Do what you got to do. Go on okay. and lock me up. I told you I'm a pastor. Okay, look, man. I, I, who called y'all? You have to identify yourself. All I did said, hey, man, do you live here? No. Nah. Is that your car? No. Nah. The pastor was eventually put in the back of a squad car. A woman soon arrives on scene, identifies herself as a neighbor, and vouches for Pastor Jennings. He lives right there, and he would be watering their flowers. This is probably my fault. She says she is the one who made the initial call to police. So you called not because of the car, but because you thought you saw someone besides him. Right, I didn't know it was him. Yeah, he, I got to keep their flowers water. I got to keep their flowers water while they die. You okay? Jennings spoke to GMA about the ordeal. It was kind of uh, surreal at that moment because I'm wondering, why is this happening? I was thinking if I did something wrong or resisted that I could have been shot. So I was trying to cooperate, even though I didn't understand what was going on. I was agitated. I was angry, but I knew to comply. The 56-year-old maintains this was a case of racial profiling. You, you're racially profiling? We're not racial profiling. No, sir. No, sir. We're not about I that. I told okay? you I was here wanting to fly. How do I know that's the truth? Anybody... I had water holes in my hand. Throughout the video, police can be heard suggesting that the situation might have been different if Jennings had provided identification. It doesn't matter if pastor or if he's a pastor or not. Like, the thing is, he's a nice enough, reasonable guy. Just talk to us. Alabama law allows police to ask someone for identification in a public place if they reasonably suspect that person of committing a crime. To be shackled and to have your freedom taken away from you, you know, it's something else. It's uh, dehumanizing. And I thought, you know, why would they be doing this? It's something that it gives you nightmares. It gives you nightmares after. Jennings maintains there was no crime, given he was on private property with permission. The neighbor, a white woman, they took her word as the gospel truth.
but the pastor who preached the gospel every Sunday. They didn't take his word at all. The pastor was charged with one count of obstruction of government operation. That charge was later dropped. For now, Jennings, Pastor Jennings, says he's leaning on his faith. My faith had helped me a lot because I knew that God would work the situation out. You have to forgive people because, you know, you can't judge people and hold things against people. Pastor does say uh, plans to follow a lawsuit. Police department say they have no comment on this because of pending lit uh, litigation. Guys, everybody involved here, the woman who called, maybe questions about what you, you could look at her story, say, why would you call? People look at the police and say, you could have handled this differently. This is not good community policing. Police will look at him. People will look at him and say, hey, just show the ID. This didn't have to happen. Everybody could have done something a little better in this situation. And guys, the, the gut punch in this is at the end of this video, his wife shows up on scene when he's in the back of the car, mm. shows, brings his ID. Uh. Police at that point say, we can't unarrest him. Oh. And he still ends up in jail. So maybe we can all learn something from this. Well, that's the thing, too. The, the neighbor came out, acknowledges a mistake, that yet they still made the charge that was dropped later. That's and, extraordinary. And again, we're all learning something. This is about yeah. community policing and having a better relationship. This could have been handled by everybody differently. Did you have to haul the pastor off to jail? People will ask that question. So, guys, just unfortunate. Well, but hopefully everybody yeah, learns something. We're learning, TJ. Yes. You're doing these stories too often. Yeah, you know, you're not having true. too many of these conversations, Trey. Yep, no doubt. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. She could challenge, uh, and if she does, she could get her job back, but some in the community say that would be a step back. Is she gonna just sit there? The conversation intended for no one is touching everyone. I'm dumb. Oh, I hate him so much. Oh, I hate this world. April 5th, Cincinnati police officer Rose Valentino is caught on her body cam. She's frustrated in traffic and begins a rant. Some say it's not only her words that are doing the talking. Her body language after she, you know, spoke those words was one of just anger. Joe Mallory is president of the NAACP. His reaction to Valentino being fired? Well, I think they came to the right decision uh, and we fully support the decision. And that's the only conclusion I think they, they could have and should have come to. But that decision could be reversed if Valentino challenges it and arbitrators agree that she should get her job back. But some say she's a liability to the city. Ohio State Senator, former officer, former Cincinnati Councilman Cecil Thomas talked to us when the video was released. She's a powder keg for the city. Part of that is because of this. 2018, she was one of three officers who held a realtor and prospective home buyers at gunpoint, thinking they were thieves. That cost the city about $150,000. In January 2019, after a homicide at the Glenway Pony Keg, she showed family crime scene pictures while at dinner at a local casino. In March 2020, she was arrested off-duty. Her sister and brother-in-law accused her of punching them and repeatedly bashing a vehicle with an umbrella. She was charged in that case. So the one-time highly regarded officer, who is even a star in a policewoman reality show, is now facing a new reality. Now, Valentino does challenge and does get her job back. There's a concern that if she 
gets back out on the street, she could be a liability and that it's anything, anything questionable happens that she wouldn't have the benefit of the doubt of the community. Reporting live, Brian Hemrick, WLWT News 5. Yeah, uh, Brian, what is the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police, saying about Valentino? Yeah, well, we did get a statement from Dan Hills, the president of the FOP. He says this, he says, uh, and no Cincinnati police officer should use the N-word or any other racial slur, and anyone who does is wrong. The Fraternal Order of Police represents Cincinnati police officers throughout the disciplinary process, as outlined in our collective bargaining agreement. Officer Valentino is entitled to challenge her termination if she chooses, and the FOP will represent her if she does. There's been no word to determine if Valentino will challenge that. Ashley. All right, Brian Hamrick leading the way on this story for us tonight. Thanks so much, Brian. Mama says police mistreat black people. Is it true? Uh, yeah, is it true? Is that true? Yeah, is it yeah, true? Is that true? Is it true? Now to a Channel 2 Action News exclusive. A police officer is charged with a crime. Here is the accused officer in his uniform, Robert Malone, charged in connection with a road rage confrontation. Here's the mugshot. The victims also talking only to Channel 2 Action News. Channel 2's Michael Seiden live in Southeast Atlanta. Uh, Michael, you have some new information. And Justin, uh, since our 5 o'clock report, we've been emailing, uh, talking with APD of Public Affairs. So initially, we had reached out to him. They told us that he had been uh, placed on paid administrative leave pending the outcome of the investigation. But since we last spoke with you, we have now confirmed that he actually submitted his resignation back in July. He is no longer uh, employed by the Atlanta Police Department, but he is still facing multiple felony charges. He is the former Atlanta police officer accused of terrorizing this Atlanta family during a road rage incident earlier this year on Cinco de Mayo. And I see him pointing a gun through the window. And I'm like, really? I, I was like, my kids are in the car. My kids are in the car. He was like, I don't care. I don't give a F and calling us the N-word and stuff. And Robert Malone, arrested in June before submitting his resignation the following month, is now facing multiple felony charges, including cruelty to children and aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. The way he acted, there's no reason why he should be able to walk around with a gun. Courtney Harris says she and her boyfriend, Quentin Rogers, along with three of their children, say the frightening encounter started at this intersection near the Beltline. Courtney says the light turned green, but the car in front of them would not move, so they pulled around it. That's when they claim Malone snapped. He was in the rage. Courtney says traffic was at a standstill, so she and her boyfriend jumped out of their car, and when they went to confront them, they couldn't believe their eyes. And that's when I looked, and I seen the badge on his sh shoulder, and I mean, the little thing, and it said Atlanta Police. It was just shocking, like, how could you be doing this? And like I say, yeah. stuff airing on news where people getting shot in roads, right? That could have easily went went sideways. This family says they eventually tracked down another officer, but Malone denied the allegations and sped away from the scene. I don't feel like he should be a police officer. I don't feel like he should walk around with a badge. Yeah, another look right here at the intersection uh, where this entire incident started now. We have been trying to get a hold of Malone as well as his attorney. So far, we haven't heard back, but as soon as we get a response, we will pass that along. For now, we are live in Southeast Atlanta. I'm Michael Seiden, Channel 2 Action News. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation, uh, 
seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Video surfaces on social media of a disturbing incident involving Stevenson High School football players in Sterling Heights. Utica Community Schools saying tonight the video of these ninth graders was based on a TikTok video referencing the death of George Floyd. Jason Coltharp looking into this today. You've talked to the district about uh, what, what we're seeing. Absolutely. And we are seeing something very disturbing in this video. And the district has opened an investigation into this. And while it can't comment on any discipline when it comes to students. I have learned all the players you're about to see in this video were punished. It's also widely believed by those with knowledge of this video that all the players were willing participants in what they deemed as a joke. Stop resisting! Stop resisting! The video shows members of the freshman football team at Stevenson High School at an off-campus team breakfast earlier this August. Some have water guns pointed at a black student pretending to be handcuffed and on the ground. Many are laughing, and you can also hear racist tropes. George Floyd, bro. In another part, a student also mentions George Floyd. I was appalled, disgusted, shocked. Senior Anthony Maharaj recently saw the video. I was uncomfortable watching it. And the fact that, that these are athletes from my school, I'm embarrassed to say that I go to that school. Maharaj has seen concerning behavior in his three years at Stevenson. A lot of non-black people saying the N-word, a lot of homophobia. Along with Anthony, others have spoken up about this new video and have even taken it to administration, including two students protesting outside Stevenson on Wednesday. I just want Stevenson and UCS to have a statement you know, doc, like something doc, uh, documented that says we don't stand for this. The Utica district did respond to my questions today with a lengthy statement, which reads in part, in a case where a diverse group of students involved make a poor choice, regardless if their stated intent was not to deliberately harm or antagonize others, the school will use it to help students understand why this is offensive and harmful to the social fabric of our community. Anthony's mother hopes that is the case. It's important for those boys who were doing that, even if the kid participated, to understand why that's not okay, to continue to deconstruct that thought because that is racist. And while she and others say it may have been a joke, but they just don't, no one finds it funny. The district also says there will continue to be discussions with coaches and adults involved to assure appropriate supervision at both sponsored and non-sponsored events. Guys. And, and if this was a team breakfast at someone's home, where were the parents or the guardians at this point? I mean, but, yeah, great question. Yeah. The district kind of references a parent mm -hmm. and believes that they were making that breakfast so it, the kids were kind of left to their own devices yeah. and this happened but that goes back to what the district is trying to say about that they're going to monitor these non-sponsored events as well yeah, sure yeah. Yeah. okay thanks jason never 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 i say for the clue class clan is here to stay okay. never never i say because the clue class clan is here to stay
New at six tonight. West Point is under fire for a plaque honoring the Ku Klux Klan. As CBS 2's Jessica Moore shows us, this discovery was made during an investigation into U.S. military bases which commemorate the Confederacy. The faces of military bases around the country are changing. What message does it send when you hear that these names are being changed? It sends a message that, that over time, uh, things that were wrong will be determined as wrong. The commission is recommending the Department of Defense rename nine military bases that honor Confederate generals. Notably, it recommends Fort Bragg in North Carolina be renamed Fort Liberty, Fort Hood in Texas be renamed Fort Cavazos, and Fort Lee in Virginia now be called Fort Greg Adams. But it's very difficult because, as I said, uh, the generals and admirals who won World War II were raised on the notion that these were heroes and they had fought in the Confederacy. And so you've got to change thinking in a big way, and I think it shows how much society has changed. Historian and West Point graduate Dr. Harlan Ullman thinks removing one monument is non-negotiable. The one monument that must be removed must be the KKK a monument at West Point. For years, students at West Point have walked into Bartlett Hall Science Center, passing by an image of a hooded figure with the words Ku Klux Klan written below it. The panel flagged the plaque in its report urging review, but said recommending the removal of the plaque fell outside its scope because the KKK, founded by Confederate soldiers, emerged after the Civil War, and the panel's purview stops at the Confederacy. That is intolerable to keep it there, no matter what the law says. And I hope that will be done. West Point sent CBS a statement noting it had seen the panel's remarks on the plaque, saying, quote, We are reviewing the recommendations and will collaborate with the Department of the Army to implement changes once approved. As a values-based institution, we are fully committed to creating a climate where everyone is treated with dignity and respect. Ultimately, West Point must decide whether or not to remove the KKK plaque. But that is certainly the one monument that should be uh, certainly removed. The Secretary of Defense holds the authority to direct specific bases to be renamed. Jessica Moore, CBS 2 News. Baby, I got gallons. Oh, no, 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 Come by my pad, oh, no. Baby, I got gallons. Oh, no, Well, we begin today's show in Jackson, Mississippi, an overwhelmingly black city with more than 180,000 area residents who are facing their third day without running water. Officials say the crisis could last indefinitely. On Tuesday, people waited in long lines for bottled drinking water to fill up at tanker trucks full for water to flush toilets and more. When you don't have no water, you know, especially when you got newborn babies. We are seeing the intentional divestment um, in communities that are led by black elected officials. This has been an issue for me since I came down here to Tougaloo College in 1991. I was always told not to drink that water. Um, when I came here to Jackson, it was smelling like chlorine. On Tuesday night, 
President Biden authorized the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, to coordinate disaster relief efforts, quote, to lessen or avert the threat of a catastrophe in Hines County. This came after Mississippi's governor declared a state of emergency for Jackson in the neighboring areas. For the past month, Jackson residents already had a boil water advisory due to problems with the city's main water treatment plant. When recent torrential rains caused the Pearl River to overtop its banks, the plant flooded and shut down, cutting off water supplies. Schools have shifted to online classes. Many businesses are closed amidst the ongoing water crisis. For more, we go to Jackson to speak with the mayor. Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba, welcome back to Democracy Now! You are in the midst of a massive crisis. Uh, the imminent cause, uh, the climate crisis causing the flooding that has shut down the sewage treatment plant. But the issue of water in Jackson has been going on for a long time. You have been warning about it. Can you talk about what's happening on the ground right now and what you think is the real long-time cause of this? Well, thank you, Amy, for having me again, and, and happy to uh, be able to lift up this, this circumstance uh, on your show. Uh, this has been something we've been crying out for more than two years, uh, saying that it's not a matter of if our systems will fail, but a matter of when our systems will fail. Uh, I have described Jackson as the poster child of the infrastructure challenges that we see in this country. Uh, and so this is something that, that when the state uh, joined me and shared that they would be bringing in uh, resources, bringing in a team to support us, we welcome that with open arms because we've been saying that we needed the support. We've been saying that we need resources. Uh, and so this is a matter of human rights. Uh, this is a matter of deferred uh, maintenance that has happened over decades, uh, a lack of investment in capital improvements, uh, and, and quite possibly, quite honestly, probably more than a billion dollars uh, worth of, of challenges that have to go into our, our water distribution system. Uh, and so we were sustaining uh, some level of, of uh, improvement uh, yesterday, uh, but the system, true to its form and true to what we have seen, uh, had a bit of regression last night. And so we're struggling to get tanks back up, struggling to be able to restore water pressure across the city. And so we believe that our residents are worthy of a system which is sustainable, are worthy of a system which is uh, equitable, uh, serving all of the residents and not having a disproportionate effect on the poorest communities in South in South Jackson. And Mayor, I wanted to ask you about the the responsibility of the state government uh, uh, in in this issue, the the state legislature. Uh, Mississippi has long been the nation's poorest state. It's also the state with the highest percentage of African uh, American residents. Uh, could you talk about how the, the state has responded in the past to your request and also the issue of the state constitution not allowing municipalities to tax themselves, uh, uh, have independent taxing authority, and how that affects uh, your ability to uh, uh, remedy the water infrastructure problems? Uh, it is clear that we're heavily reliant on, on the state for, for many of these resources. Uh, not only because we don't have the independent ability to tax ourselves, uh, but because even the federal funding that is sent uh, to or intended for cities like Jackson 
the conduit that, that it comes through is the, actually the state of Mississippi. Uh, and so it's no secret that I have been consistent uh, in lifting up that, that all parties that have, uh, that have ability, uh, that have uh, license or authority uh, to help with this problem, need to lean in and, and uh, be a part of the process of, of its correction. Uh, but today, uh, you know, I have to focus on the priority of the coalition that is being built now uh, and have to be optimistic in, in that coalition. Uh, and so, you know, I think that, that there is a time to discuss, you know, why we haven't seen this coalition form sooner, uh, to discuss just how far we're going to go. Uh, but I will say that, that I am at least delighted to see that, that there is discussion about moving together at this point. Uh, I don't believe that, that we should have taken uh, this time to get here, uh, but I am you know, going to move forward in a spirit of operational unity, focusing more on our common ends and objectives than our differences at this time. And what, is, what are your hopes for what the federal government might uh, possibly do to assist the residents of Jackson in this crisis? Well, I hope that they, they bring the, the full um, arm of their authority, uh, understanding that this is a crisis, this is an emergency, uh, that the events that uh, sparked the, uh, the, the pressure being reduced on this occasion were directly associated with the, the flood uh, that we recently experienced. Uh, but, you know, it's well documented even amongst uh, federal agencies and, and uh, leadership uh, all the way up to the White House. Uh, that this is a persistent problem. You know, I've had the opportunity to walk with Administrator Regan here in Jackson, looking at the, the multitude of challenges we have with respect to our infrastructure. Uh, on the occasion of his visit, uh, we had low water pressure challenges in South Jackson. We were visiting a school in South Jackson and the children had to relocate. Uh, I've been with him in, in D.C. and heard him give his stump speech about, you know, the direction of the EPA. Uh, and I've heard him include the city of Jackson in that speech. Uh, and so we're looking for, you know, every available dollar, uh, every available partner. And we're, we're working with a coalition of the willing uh, in order to restore dignity to our residents. Uh, this is part and parcel of a cycle of humiliation that far too often our communities have to suffer from because we aren't given the sustainable development resources for the quality of life that they deserve. I wanted to uh, and, go ahead. Uh, I, I just want to ask one other thing to the mayor. What about the President Biden's infrastructure legislation that was passed? Has any of that money been earmarked uh, for Jackson and for its infrastructure needs? That money has has not yet um, has not yet landed in Jackson. Uh, and you know what I have, what I can share is my discussions uh, with the czar, uh, Mitch Landrew. Uh, along with my discussions with uh, Administrator Regan, were both consistent in that they had money intended or they had Jackson in mind uh, with the allocation that they expected to go to our state. Uh, and so we just have to make certain that it, it goes from its inception point all the way to, to the final destination, uh, which is right to our water treatment facilities, which is towards you know, creating a, a sustainable uh, and equitable system for our residents.
Mayor Lumumba, you've attributed the water plant breakdown to the recent flooding of the Pearl River. But Republican Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves has said years of poor maintenance wore down the facility's pumps. This is him on Monday. At the end of last week, I was briefed by the uh, state health department on the discovery that Jackson's main water treatment facility has been operating with zero redundancies. The main pumps had recently been damaged severely about the same time as the prolonged boil water notice began, and the facility was now operating on smaller backup pumps. The city government was unable to give them a timeline for when the facility would be back in proper operating condition. That's Republican Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves. You declared an emergency in Jackson on Monday. Uh, he followed on Tuesday. Uh, before we let you go to deal with this catastrophe in the city, what do you see as the long-term plan? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, uh, I just want to be clear that we've been lifting up these challenges uh, since about 2018. Uh, I, I came into office in, in 2017. Uh, and so we've been going to state leadership to speak to these challenges ever since that, that point in time. Uh, this has been a, a, a combination of uh, accumulated challenges over the course of time, more than three decades worth of challenges. Uh, and so uh, I liken it to a vehicle. Uh, if you're changing the oil regularly, if you're uh, if you're rotating the tires, if you're giving it its tune-up, uh, then it's likely to function better. Uh, but when that has not taken place over the course of such a significant period of time as what has happened in Jackson, then you end up with larger, uh, more, uh, more, you know, more substantial threats to your to your vehicle and to this system. Uh, and so we've been crying out to the state for the support. Uh, there has been an equity in, in what we've seen in Jackson versus other communities. Uh, and so we've been lifting that up. But at this time, what our focus is, is a, is a focus on a coalition that works together, a coalition that is arm in arm, uh, making sure that we work towards the residents of Jackson and making certain that we can conclude uh, these challenges. We need uh, an, overall, an overhaul of our water treatment facility. Uh, in all actuality, a new water treatment facility would, would be in order uh, because the water treatment facility we have uh, has never functioned op optimally and has had challenges from the moment that it was created. Uh, and so I think it is imperative uh, that we work towards automizing or automating, I'm sorry, automating uh, portions of the plant, the feed systems, uh, weatherizing of the plant. Not only do we have the challenges, you know, stemming from the flood on this event, uh, two Februarys ago, uh, the, the freezing temperatures of a February storm led to the debilitation of the plant at that time. Uh, we've seen this time and time again. Uh, we have hotter summers, colder winters, uh, and more precipitation uh, annually. And so this is all taking a toll on our infrastructure. And so on the short term, uh, we're looking towards, uh, you know, the state's resources, uh, you know, in human capital and, and you know, physical uh, capital improvements to the plant. And long term, we're looking towards the combination of fe state and federal funds uh, to make overall adjustments in the plant. We've been investing the money that we've had. We've invested $8 million towards a larger, uh, a, a larger uh, pipe just to service the South Jackson community. 
We've invested in a structure over our membrane side uh, and, and the weatherization process to make certain that we aren't crippled like we were in February. We've invested in so many improvements in our water treatment plant, but we can't go it alone. We don't have a billion dollars worth of resources to make this happen. Fortunately, we have the partnership uh, and the collaboration of agencies like the U.S. Water Alliance and Kellogg that are working in conjunction with the city of Jackson so that we can put forth and prioritize that which has already been outlined by our order of consent with the EPA that identifies numerous challenges within our plants. We know what the challenges are, and that order outlines it. We need the resources to actually fix those challenges at this time. Shokoyan Tarlamumba, mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, we thank you for being with us. For more, we're joined by Kali Akuno, longtime activist, co-founder and co-director of Cooperation Jackson, an organization that works to democratize the economy and empower the black community. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Kali. And, Kali, I wanted to ask you, uh, but this infrastructure issue and the racial inequities, it, uh, un, un, it reveals across the country. Several years ago, we had the situation in Flint. Uh, subsequent to that, there was the crisis in Newark's public schools uh, with infrastructure, mm -hmm. again, mm -hmm. lead pipes in the water. And now we're looking at Jackson. All of these cities are majority black cities. Uh, could you could you talk about this situation of the inequities that occur in our system right. when it comes even to infrastructure? Well, number one, it's not by by happenstance or coincidence. Uh, what we are experiencing now is is literally just the crumbling of the empire's infrastructure. I think everybody needs to be clear about that, and that this has a long history. I think, as the mayor and other commentators have noted. Um, if you really want to trace a lot of this back, it goes back to, uh, I would argue, to the 1950s and 60s uh, with the so-called urban renewal uh, programs and the massive subsidization of the suburbs, which facilitated white flight uh, out of many of these major cities, Jackson being one of them, uh, and with that uh, went major capital flight. Uh, and that has continued uh, with very chronic programs of divestment and, and uh, deindustrialization, in many cases in most of the cities like Jackson, uh, which is just left crumbling in infrastructure. And every city that you you mentioned, Newark, Flint, Detroit, uh, we can go on. Uh, this story, this development, which was facilitated, uh, you know, by programs which were developed on a national level. Uh, right after World War II, is what brings us to this uh, uh, dimension of the crisis. We also have to talk about, you know, being honest and in, in, in really linking this to the deeper issue of, of climate change uh, and the, the threat that is, it is clearly now posing all over the world. I mean, uh, just listening to your introduction, we're, we're talking about uh, droughts, you know, uh, in, in East Africa. We're talking about record flooding uh, uh, in Pakistan. Uh, we have severe drought going on in, in uh, Western Europe right now, in the Western portion of the United States. We have to look at this. I would encourage you know the audience to look at all of these dynamics uh, uh, as a whole. And Jackson is just, just one of these kind of acute areas. So there's a story about the lady in Louisiana. She's a flood survivor and the rescue teams. They come through and they're, I guess, trying to recover people. And uh, they see this woman, she's wading through the streets. I guess it had been some time after the storm. And I guess they were shocked that, you know, 
she was alive. You know. Rescue worker said to her, oh my God, how did you survive? How did you do it? Where have you been? And she said, where I've been? Where you been? Where you been? You know what I'm saying? That's about the size of it. The scale of the flooding that struck Pakistan is apocalyptic. 45% of the country's farmland is estimated to have been swept away. Around a million homes destroyed. More than 1,200 people killed. The total bill comes to $10 billion. The fear now is that with huge numbers of livestock also killed, acute food shortages could follow. These people in Punjab are desperate for help. Thank God the government and the elders in the area have been kind enough to provide some help, but it will be better if the government provides more aid. People from the government don't allow us to go to them. They don't give us rations. When we demand rations, they say, why don't you work? What can we do now that our houses are swept away by the floods? Our correspondent, Fumza Falani, has been out with rescuers in the southern city of Dadu near the Indus River. Just look at all this water. It's like being in the middle of the ocean, except just over there are people's houses, and there are many more in far-flung communities. And the water levels here in Dadu are rising, and officials say around 250,000 people are at risk of drowning unless they can get them out to safety. The British Foreign Minister for South Asia, Lord Ahmed, says Pakistan will need long-term support. And he says there's little doubt what lies behind the floods. This is the impact of climate change. Let's not beat around the bush. This is a direct impact of what Pakistan is actually impacted by the glaciers actually melting. And this is still an ongoing situation. So we've assured Pakistan of long-term support. We'll need to look at infrastructure support. You know, over 3,000 kilometres of road has disappeared. 160 bridges have gone. There's over 33 million people impacted. And it's important we keep this in the front of everyone's minds. Our science reporter, Georgina Ranard, says it's clear climate change played a big part in Pakistan's record-breaking floods. Scientists are clear about the link between climate change and more intense monsoons, and that's because global warming is causing air and sea temperatures to rise, which puts more moisture into the atmosphere, which makes monsoon rainfall more intense. Now, studies have shown that the Indian summer monsoon rains will become more powerful and more erratic, so essentially, we won't be able to predict them as much. And the rain that's fallen this year in June to August is record-breaking. Pakistan had 190% more rain than its 30-year average. And it's not just the, the monsoon rains. Uh, it's also the fact that Pakistan has more glacial ice than anywhere outside the polar regions. Yes, Pakistan is particularly vulnerable to climate change, and that is largely down to geography. The north of the country has this region often called the Third Pole, uh, which is where there's more glacial ice anywhere in the world outside polar regions. And with these glaciers comes a huge risk to millions of people living close by. So as the glaciers are melting, more than 3,000 lakes have already been created. And some of these are at risk of suddenly bursting, which could pour huge amounts of water and debris on people nearby. This, there are documented incidences of this in the past. Obviously, that's very concerning in the long term and will just add to the problems of river flooding that comes in monsoon season. And Pakistan itself has emitted only a tiny, tiny fraction of the greenhouse gases that are emitted around the world and yet it's suffering disproportionately from climate change. So 
the onus is on wealthier countries perhaps to do more to try to, to help countries as vulnerable as Pakistan. I think for many people, this is one of the most striking issues in these floods, that they feel a strong sense of climate injustice. Pakistan is responsible for less than 1% of greenhouse gas emissions, these gases that are warming our planet. And historically, they emitted even less. But the country is in the top 10 most vulnerable nations to the impacts of climate change. So essentially, when we see these pictures of torrential rain sweeping through towns and streets, the people affected have by and large contributed almost nothing to climate change. And this is something that comes up over and over again in international climate conferences. Countries that are the most vulnerable want the richer countries to essentially compensate them for the huge losses and damages they're suffering. Could Pakistan have done more to mitigate the effect of these floods because the government has been criticised for not doing enough to shore up the defences while they could? Historically, poorer countries have been less able to withstand the, this type of extreme weather, the, this flooding. One expert I spoke to told me that he believed that the that Pakistan's weather service had given quite reasonable early warning. He said there are some flood defences, but they're not adequate. But he believed that this type of record-breaking rain, even a richer country with very strong flood defences, would not be able to withstand it. And we saw an example of that in Germany last year with those devastating floods. Georgina Rannard. Let's turn to Ukraine. You can easily lose sight of the loss here, of the lives buried beneath, the crops, the homes, the hope. We're in the Katcher area of Dadu in Sindh province, a window into a community that's drowning in change. This is normally completely dry, and look at it now. It's a lake, and in some places, it's 20 feet deep, and there are whole villages completely submerged. Stranded, standing on what little land is left, these are the people of Jan Mohammed. Huddled together, here for three weeks, with no access to aid, clinging on to each other. Lal Khatun tells me, no one came here to help. Thank goodness I got my children here. But they have fevers and stomach problems. She wants to show me where her home once stood. This is your house? Yes. Completely underwater. This has become an island, and they are among the most vulnerable. There's about 100 people living here, lots of them children, many of them sick. They are desperate to leave, but they're worried there's just no shelter and no food for them anywhere else. It's cramped space and sanitation in short supply. And so is medicine, with disease spreading. This boy has spots all over his body. His mother believes it's caused by the flood water. They're exhausted, but the water is rising, and it's a risk staying put. Many of the children in this area are already malnourished. Lal Hatun's grandson is three months old. He has a fever. 
it could be very hard days ahead. While they fight for survival, their education is on hold. This is the local school, and they've lost their places of prayer too. Where they walk was once a road, and they can't see a way out. This is being called a climate hotspot, the victim of a world that's playing catch-up. Cordelia Lynch, Sky News, Sindh Province, Pakistan. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, September 3, 2022. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, counter racist suggestions. The number to dial 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Give out the number a few more times. Get to the folks who dialed in on the phone lines we are listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the cows is constructive visit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com paypal button is in the top right corner beneath the paypal you'll see Links for Cash App, Venmo, PayPal as well. Enormous thanks to all of the listeners all throughout the known universe uh, who have invested in the cows, kept us on the air for 13 plus years, hopefully providing constructive, more often than not accurate information on what white supremacy racism is and how it works. You can also invest uh, hitting our wish list at Amazon.com, linked at the blog. Uh, it is listed under Gus T. Renegade. Again, gigantic thanks to all of the investors who have nabbed an item or five over the many years of broadcasting. Hopefully, we have been worthy of your time and energy. One thing, and you can share the broadcast as well. You're on social media. Share links. Share links to your favorite program. Let people know that the cows exist if you think it would aid non-white people's understanding of what white supremacy racism is and how it works. One of the duties here at the cows uh, that I take very seriously, I noted this immediately and I made the contrast the grandcestor, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, uh, Dick Gregory, Neely Fuller Jr., Dr. Kamal Kambon, many, many, many of the non-white people uh, that we esteem, even some of the folks that are still with us. They pay a lot of attention to current events, things that are happening. What is racist man? What a racist man, racist woman, racist child? What are they up to? That is extremely important. I know that's something that I did not do before I started being more serious, more astutious about white supremacy racism, especially when I started saying like, dang, every time Dr. Welsing, 
talks about racism she cites about five ten different current news reports that corroborate her theory of white genetic annihilation like wow that's you know and every time so that means current reports every time that is important that is something and I've heard from listeners all over the world don't have time that is a component of it as well race soldiers a lot of times they terrorize us we don't have time to keep up with current events so I've heard from many victims I don't have time to check the news or I don't do so so that's one way that I utilize the cows compensatory call in specifically what is happening in the world even though it's just a sliver but I do try to pick out things that I think are important that happened over the last seven days this week that is easily the longest segment of news that we've ever had for the compensatory call-in. I value folks, you know, sharing their opinions and what have you, provided it's not about TV and, you know, Area 8 sexual activity. Uh, but, man, this week, it was historic. Absolutely. I'll give out the number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943 pound press star six one if you would like to participate would have been historic anyway just 17 years hurricane katrina easily one of the most important events in the last quarter century i would even say last half century uh, in the northwestern hemisphere easily everything that happened subsequently in that part of the world no question that event being 17 years from this week and you're still dealing with the ramifications of you heard that in the in the segments this week to have the situation in Jackson Mississippi black majority black location they don't even have safe drinking water and they said this could go on indefinitely. That at the same time with the floods in Pakistan. Now I will say, hey, I probably wouldn't have paid attention to that at all if I was not focused on racism, white supremacy, except I do happen to know worked with someone who was born in Pakistan. I'm sure we would have talked about it because we talked about racism, white supremacy all the time. I talked to this person, non-white female. Uh, in fact, when she was in Pakistan, we talked about bleaching creams, the word fair, how she is the darkest member of her family and how that greatly impacted the way that she was treated. In fact, when she came here to the States, she lived in California where she still lives. She lived in California during the O.J. Simpson trial. Her parents, also non-white, so-called Pakistanian, they watched the entire O.J. Simpson trial and were staunchly, indignantly in support of Mr. Simpson. She used to tell me this. She would talk about this all the time. And I found it so funny, especially because at that time, I didn't care about O.J. Simpson at all. Anywho, 
I am sure she would have said something, but I would not have processed, hey, all three of these events, non-white people, dark people, suffering. All of these water problems, this is the deliberate, predictable product of white supremacy racism. Even the parallels, they said right now, 1,200 deaths in Pakistan. Probably going to be a lot more than that. New Orleans Hurricane Katrina, they said it's about 1,800 deaths approximately. Even, hey, never get an accurate count on that. Somewhere around 1,800. Saying the exact, where is the help? No one even care. Isn't that the same thing? I remember that. Hurricane Katrina. Where's the help? Man, we got to get Rare Na- or Mayor Nagin on the radio. What in the world? Down here suffering? Jackson. We've been talking about this water problem for a long time. They said way before we got to this point of black people in Jackson, Mississippi not having water way before it got to this point we had the boil notice I am so thankful even though that's my BFF Amy Goodman Democracy Now when they talked about this they had uh, Mayor Lumumba on the report other folks as well talking about all this they put that in context they said hey haven't we heard this before whole city full of Negras and they don't have water and they started just rattling them off. So we got Flint, Michigan, right, right, lived through that one. We got Benton Harbor, Michigan. Just been talking about that one more recently, but same thing, lead in the water, although for different reasons. Newark, New Jersey. Tombstone Territory in the San Joaquin Valley in California. We talked about that earlier this year. That's the one where you got a majority black area. In California, where their water system was contaminated and they are are having difficulties, white supremacy, racism, connecting to other sources. They didn't even mention that one. All of these areas with lots of black people. Water, I mean, the biggest, oh, I say that all the time. It's almost 2025. And this is like caveman basics. Water, we can't even flush the toilet all of the and that's the exact same thing they said in Katrina they got that in Spike Lee's documentary where they were told way before Katrina and the levee breach told the niggers too broke to evacuate fill your bathtub up with water so you can flush the toilet because we probably won't have water which many of them didn't for weeks, months in some cases, especially in the lower, lower Ninth Ward, Negras. All of that, in my view, Dr. Welsing, she said it was our cosmic assignment. Replace white supremacy with justice. Cosmic duty. In my view, all of these three events, all of these non-white people, in that 1,200 deaths in Pakistan, that could be all non-white people. Dark enough, you can walk from East Africa, so-called, to Pakistan. 
white people put that line there to even make this a so-called country. Say we'll call it Pakistan. Hadn't even been there that long, unless I'm misinformed. But these are dark people, non-white people, victims of white supremacy who were not doing that well anyway. And they said a third of the country is underway. If this had happened anywhere else on the planet where it was white people, oh my God, they we would not have heard anything about Serena Williams or anything else. They wouldn't have even talked about those no count niggers in Jackson not having water. It would have been, oh my God, a third of Sweden is underwater. A third of Germany is underwater. A third of Australia is underwater. That's what it would have been. What are we going to do? Got to get help. Oh my gosh. That's not what happened. I looked at the pictures of Pakistan. One, it reminded me of Katrina 17 years ago. But two, the other thing, I couldn't even process what I was looking at. They had the pictures of what it looked like before the storms. Okay. See the roads, houses. Okay. Boom, boom, boom. They had the other picture. This is what it looks like afterwards. Looked back at the first picture. Okay. See the house. Boom, boom. Look back at the other one. It's like, I don't want it's the computer it's but it took me about a good five minutes to be like oh I don't see anything because everything is underwater oh that would be all but these are dark people I know they're not black people born in the states I got it I got it these are dark people look exactly like many of the folks that I saw in Katrina the exact 1200 dark people and then racial dislocation with all the they, I didn't hear in the Ukraine program you heard that I did that deliberately the BBC they talked about us oh my god and the devastation and millions of dark people with racial dislocation oh well on to Ukraine system of white supremacy racism in my view all of that should be looked at together again exactly as it was stated no it is not a coincidence for all of this to happen at this moment Jackson Katrina Pakistan it's all the same thing predictable product of the system of white supremacy and especially white people being a tiny minority on the planet now since I say this was historic week in so many ways I'm just quickly see if I can do a concise run back of what did we hear why did we have to sit through all of that as opposed to giving folks an opportunity to share or whatever else I didn't even play everything because I totally could have included what happened at BYU did people see that they had uh, the Duke volleyball player said she was terrorized by a fan and then the police came back said that this didn't happen and all that out in Utah didn't even include that that was the beginning of the week all right so I'm going in reverse order we already heard about the flooding in Pakistan racial dislocation nobody even cares uh, we heard about the situation in Jackson Mississippi we were just talking about Mississippi a lot this month uh, on the program I'd say our timing still impeccable uh, for 2022 put that in context for sure because they included lots of white people peace out once the system of white supremacy changes a little bit to 
a tone or a method of practice that we do not agree with, we will just leave and now you don't have a tax base and oh well. Have fun boiling your water, niggers. <laughs> Heard that many, many times. Let's see. Okay, so West Point. That was one I could have ditched. We didn't have to hear that, but I mean, really. Klansmen at West Point, I posted about that. I said, keep it up forever. Decorate it. Put jack-o'-lanterns up next to it for Halloween. Santa Claus statues next to it for Christmas. Make it the campus mascot. Had to keep that one in. That was in New York, by the way, West Point. Uh, let's see. They had the George Floyd impersonation at Sterling Heights. Now, how could I leave that out? I talk all the time about if you're a parent, definitely don't have your son, non-white child, black boys out there playing football for any reason. You definitely don't want them involved in the George Floyd reenactment sketch. Anytime I can play the Obama segment, I got to keep that one. Next, going in reverse order, uh, we had the road rage in Atlanta. I used to live in Atlanta. How could I leave that one out? Black family. Did you hear that? In the report, they said in Atlanta, uh, Officer Robert Malone, white man. He hasn't been fired. He's on paid administrative leave, like vacation. So. He's in his car. He gets upset. Black family. They got their young children in the car. He pulls out his firearm. No count. Nick Rizzo. What are you doing out here? I'll shoot, shoot all of you. I hate Michael Vick too. And he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. We got our children in the car. And he says, man, you haven't been listening to that coon Gusty Renegades program. And he, he told you for years. He said, white people, me, we don't care about children. How could I leave that one out next going in reverse order? Cincinnati. We talked about Officer Rose Valentino before following up on that one and white woman. Not just the man can't have a system of racism, white supremacy without white women. And they said Rose Valentino. Did you hear they said that? Uh oh, she's got a record here. This isn't her first you know, kind of controversial situation. They said, now, she was swapping photographs from crime scenes. I said, man, where, where did we where did we hear that before? Oh, you, you mean like the lynching postcards where they go and see, we chopped off the niggers, scrolled them on that one and got his finger. Oh, worthless niggers, Zachariah. It's like that. Oh, oh, you mean like Kobe Bryant? When they went and said, oh, we got the charred nigger. Look at that. <laughs> oh, Kobe Bryant all burned up. That's what I said that is white culture that's all these serial killer and true crime books they put that in breaking bad even what they say is one of the best television shows ever they got a white fbi agent brags go to the crime scene oh we got his arm chopped off let me get a photo let me get it make sure you get his nub and make sure you get his nub okay we're gonna do it. let's see one two three nubby <laughs> Call him Nubby. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna put that on my website. It's gonna be crimeandgrime.com. Crimeandgrime.com. Got the one where you got decapitated. Got old Nubby here. Got the one where you went through the cheese, through the dashboard. Oh my God, he rolled around the ground. Call that one cheesy. You know, like we went through the greater. <laughs> crimeandgrime.com. Now, why would you have that replayed over and over? 
really, if you want to give me the details, Rose Valentino, the pictures that you were showing off, were these pictures of non-white people? Hmm. Without sanctuary. Hmm. Had to keep that one. Reverse order. So, Alabama pastor. <laughs> I prefaced that one with Bull Connor. You can watch Eyes on the Prize, all that. Bull Connor was the sheriff in Alabama. He used the water hoses on the young children. But I used the segment from Spike Lee's Four Little Girls where they were talking. They said that Bull Connor said, grab that blind nigger. So we, in 1963, snatched that blind nigger, throw him in the paddy wagon. No count niggers. And they got video, actually, of them snatching the blind nigger and throwing him in the paddy wagon. Right. Niggers is niggers. We fast forward 60 years black pastor is watering flowers now that one they can say whatever they want to about the enforcement officers I expect Bull Connor they do what they do the white woman you can't have a system of white supremacy racism without white women what is suspicious about a nigra holding a garden hose under any circumstance I wager if that pastor had been a white person, child, woman, elderly, whatever, Jeffrey Dahmer, no police call. Oh, they're watering the flowers. Okay. Well, whatever. Why do I need to call the police for that? Or even maybe I just take a close look. Oh, that's old Jimmy. He lives down the road, right? He's looking. Okay, right on. Now, suspicious nigra, I bet this is a ruse he's got crack in his pocket he's gonna break into the house and probably rape any white women in the neighborhood i gotta call the cops Mm-hmm. once they arrest him they can't unarrest him right they say wife brought the identification and incidentally in all that they say, well he could have shown his id if i live here do I have to bring my slave papers out to walk across the street? <laughs> I, mean, I, I I see people do that. I know I talked about this before. I know I'm an uncouth heathen where I walked around the house that time and brushed my teeth and they called the police on me. So, I mean, I know all about that. Stay in the house and brush my teeth from now on. <laughs> but I have seen people walk outside in their pajamas, footies, bathrobe. I'm just watering the lawn. I mean... Do you need your slave? I'm asking honest. Like, let me know. Like, I don't brush my teeth outside anymore. I've seen people do that, but I know I can't do that. If you got to have your papers at all time, I'm just walking across. Get all your papers. No lip. Shut up. Reverse order. Couldn't leave that one out. We got listeners in Alabama. More than a quarter of U.S. adults say they fear being attacked in their neighborhood just because they use the term octoroon in that segment. We got listeners in Alaska, too, so it was twofer. Couldn't leave that one out. But octoroon, he said they went up and said, what are you, an octoroon? And he said, I didn't even know what that meant. I had to go look it up. I don't even know how do you respond to that one because they say, what are you, an octoroon? And you say, ooh, uh, uh, what, uh. 
do you all give out free massages to octoroons? <laughs> like what what happens if I'm an octoroon? <laughs> saying like let me let me know the details and I'll tell you. Matter of fact, what do you do to octoroons and then tell me what an octoroon is? And then I can give you a truthful answer, maybe. Couldn't leave that one out. Let's see. Life expectancy drops in the US. Couldn't leave that one out. Even for white white genetic annihilation. Many reasons I couldn't leave that one out. Next. Uh long term effects on school closures. Many reasons I couldn't leave that one out, uh, specifically when they started talking about the impact on black children. Next, sleep. No way I was going to leave that one out. I wouldn't care if nobody got to talk, including myself. I said before, Gus T would be a Rhodes Scholar. I have the same amount of money as LeVon James. We'd probably be neighbors if I had got nine hours of rest in my teens I never I was doing the math when they started talking about you need nine hours and all the reasons why and no you cannot uh, recuperate on the weekends and sleep a lot it does not work that way Uh, I started thinking so how much sleep did I get in my teens before they even said it I said I think about five or six would be the average per night and they said about six hours. That's what I said. Yep. I think I was there probably a little bit lower. I suspect many black children. It's probably a little bit lower than that. I remember being fatigued my entire life. I said that Barry and mom, she talked about the young lady that she worked with. She said, I'm sleepy. Me too. Me too. Let's all get nap time. I had listeners this week talking about those sheets, man. I said, invest in quality bedding. Real, I mean, that is something I did not have people talk to me. And I mean, they're still learning. Sleep is not value. You know, they say don't sleep and all that sleep is not value in a system of racism, white supremacy. Sleep is critical to health just as much as what you eat. Really? Imp- I thought it was disgraceful. They talked about it in the segment. Get those phones away from the children. We've had folks who talked about uh, the grandparents got the grandchild a phone, a cell phone at one. Not even potty trained. They think it's a pacifier. If you are going to have offspring, be a parent. Are you? I don't have children, but I mean, you are out of your cotton picking mind, deliberate metaphor. If you think I have a child and I pay the phone bill. I can't take the phone from this child. Are you serious? I couldn't imagine having a cell phone or really anything else. And my parents are paying the bill for this and they can't take it from you or set parameters around it. The phone goes off at whatever time, eight, nine. That's it for phone time for the day it has to be docked right here. That's parenting. You mean you can't take the phone? I don't care if they're 16 years old. You can take a phone from anyone. Is that is that the rule with the car? They're 16, so I can't take the car. You know, they're 16 now. Be a parent. Set the rules. Jeez. Next. Couldn't leave that one out. Sleep. Katrina. Couldn't leave that one out. That's signature work. Next. Let's see. The... For, oh, the housing... 
that one in particular, they talked about how all of the inflation and the disruption with COVID-19 and everything else has disrupted many black people from purchasing houses. That's the system of racism, white supremacy. The thing that stood out with me there were several. One, they talked with one black female, Michigan. She talked about having 19% interest on her car loan. They have many reports about the rife white supremacy in the car loan industry that is responsible for black people like her paying ridiculous, ridiculously high loan rates, interest rates. Also in that segment, they said the lineage of discrimination that black people have faced and going back to the 1930s. Pause right there. N.D.B. Connolly, guest on this program, wrote the book, A World More Concrete. He lost more than a quarter million dollars of value on his Maryland property right now. 2022 got a white person to pose as the owner of his property and it appreciated in value almost three hundred thousand dollars. That's not something that happened. 30 years ago, 70 years ago, 50 years ago, that happened like five minutes ago. They do that all the time. It is deliberate deception every single time. Reverse going backwards. Let's see. Black farmers, they do all of that. In fact, Earl Butts, former secretary of agriculture. I love that quote. What did he say? He said, I'm not worried about the Negro. All the Negro wants. Loose shoes. Tight pussy. And a warm place to shit. That's what, in my view, every time they come to talk about it, let's make it explicit. What is the record the U.S. Department of Agriculture with regards to not poor people and poor farmers, blah, 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 just the nigra. Backwards. Uh, loan forgiveness. Now that one I could have left out maybe, but I mean, whew, lots of black people have done that. Got to go to school and get all that debt, get all that uh, to get those degrees. And then they don't give you a job. And then you got to pay all that back. I did think that was important. And that's another one that they could have, you know, addressed racism, white supremacy. So I did think that was important, but I could have left that one out or I guess swapped that for the BYU. That's maybe the only one I could think of so far uh, before that. Oh, my God. The report from Canada on alcohol. Once again, there was no way that one was going to get left out. They said. No more then three drinks that is the threat oh, i think it was two once you go over three it, hey this is damaging to the health i said man that almost sounds like that moron he says white people don't care about children and sobriety would be best hmm And then Serena Williams, no way I could leave that one out as well. We've talked about her. We talked about the movie. We read her dad's book, Black and White, The Way I See It. 
legendary, almost top 10 worthy whole career of white supremacy racism. One thing that I will say, Dr. Tommy J. Curry, many time guest on the cows. He is a uh, huge tennis fan. He talked about, hey, man, y'all can sit around and pretend and do all your revisionist history and whoopee for Serena Williams. And she changed tennis and revolutionized the game and right on for Title IX. Uh, White people have sat around for a quarter century and called her and her sister and her whole family, Orsine Price, uh, Richard Williams, Yatunde Price, the late. They have sat around and called them Negras, monkeys, and specifically with Serena and Venus, ridiculed them as men. Talk about racist jokes. I was bothered even in the segment when they said Serena Williams has done so much for women like really every time I hear that women I feel like they should say white women we're going to say non-white females because I do not think white women are oh my goodness Serena Williams has done so much we talked about that it's been 25 years of white women criticizing practicing racism white supremacy even White women too. Oh my gosh. It's like playing against dudes. My goodness. That's what it's been for 25 glorious years of Williams triumph. So I couldn't leave that one out either. So historic weekend, as always, that is just a sliver of what took place on the planet. But again, most importantly, Katrina, Jackson, Pakistan, it is all the same thing, predictable product of white supremacy, racism, and why there should be some urgency about solving this problem. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate if folks uh, paid attention to the flooding situation in Pakistan you can let me know about that uh, certainly what's happening down in Jackson uh, also super important all the other things that transpired over uh, the past seven days certainly we are with a holiday weekend I'll get it in at the, at the uh, conclusion of the program holiday weekends always sobriety would be best but if you're going out uh, going to the beach or if you have travel plans or anything like that be super mindful they will probably have enforcement officials uh, out and about uh, until probably Tuesday or so Uh, if you got time away from the plantation fantastic take advantage Uh, that means you can spend time with your uh, attempted family get more rest spectacular take advantage of it do it to death Uh, but if you're going to be out and about I would be sober. Uh, And if you are going to be someplace public, a get together, barbecue, whatever it is, I would just be very mindful of the event. Be codified. Uh, If other folks are there and they are not sober, I would be mindful about that. If it looks like things are going to be loud, rowdy, anything of that sort. Hey, might be time to go, especially if there anyone, anyone classified as white is present and or even if just if it's all non-white people but it is not harmonious which can be the case frequently be alert if you're with others 
let them know in advance. Just discuss that. Hey, this is, you know, whatever happens. We get out of here. We rendezvous at this point. We all have our, you know, phones, whatever it is. So we can text and figure out a plan to coordinate and get out of here. But we'll already know this is what we're going to do and make sure that we all get out of here safely. But enjoy your winding down the summer. Get outside, get some sunshine, all that good stuff. But be sober, be safe, strategic, codified for so-called Labor Day weekend. Number is 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Let's see. Uh, Folks are spectating, seems, might be spectating. Uh, We had our longer clip section, hopefully. Folks got constructive information, uh, hopefully, Folks are paying attention to what's happening in Pakistan and Jackson. Uh, I know there's so many things that are happening uh, in the system of white supremacy. And one, if you're an attempted parent and you have school like, man, that alone disrupt like that's one also could have been included. The national school shortage that has disrupted lots all across the country. So if you're an attempted parent uh, or just a victim of white supremacy attempting to, you know, deal with things as best you can. It can be difficult to be mindful uh, about things that are happening uh, around the globe on the planet. Uh, Definitely pay attention and particularly, hey, if you are an attempted parent, that situation in Jackson, Newark, Benton Harbor, Flint, Tombstone Territory uh, out in California, hey, let's make sure that that is not us, where we have to be out riding around trying to see if we can get bottled water. They ran out of bottled water in Jackson this week. You do not want to be in that situation like I would explore, like check out. That's what we talk about investigating locally, uh, state level. Investigate. Are there risk factors for the water in your area? They have water tanks uh, that you can get. Uh, that hold many, many, like well over 100 gallons of water. It would just be, you know, where you're going to store this at and all that good stuff. But I mean, that is super something to think about, especially if you have children. I know we have folks who have young children that are under five and under 10 and what have you. So, I mean, that is serious. Uh, they were talking to parents uh, down there and, and just even just people, period, trying to live through all of that. And you can't flush the toilet you can't take a shot man in Mississippi in the middle of the summertime in what they call climate change where it is extreme heat and you can't take a shower or flush the toilet come on in a majority black town come on all deliberate product of white supremacy racism I cannot emphasize enough tiny minority on the planet that was Dr. Welsing's theory of white genetic annihilation she talked about that all the time these sort of events whether it's Jackson uh, Mississippi Pakistan all of them Benton Harbor 
I suspect there will be more of these, especially if whites, that life expectancy rate dropping. They talked about how COVID, yeah, there was a part of it, but this started even before that. They were talking about opioids and substance abuse and all that. Tons of white people. This continues. Oh, man, you will have even more. I, In my view, Pakistan is important. That's one of those areas. I think Pakistan, India, Nigeria, these areas that have huge populations of non-white people, young populations of non-white people where they are fertile and having children like, oh, man, these areas in particular, I would pay attention to on a global scale because racists, they are probably going to be doing lots to disrupt uh, these areas. And Mr. Fuller, he has that. population tailoring some of it might be just with these type of events right here can't get water that impacts your sanitation can't have water to drink can't have water to bathe or we have these massive floods that all of that right there population tailoring of populations of dark people that is exactly verbatim what Mr. Fuller has laid out right before and Katrina Pakistan, Jackson. Mr. Uh, Fuller talked about Katrina over and over again. The symbolism and having all these images of dark people suffering and waiting on white people to come save them. And if they don't, no salvation for you. Anywho, uh, let's see. Folks are still spectating. I said historic week with so many things happening uh, in the U.S. and uh, globally. Uh, folks are, you know, not paying attention or doing other things. I'll give like five, maybe five minutes. See if folks have any thoughts to share. And then, uh, we will wrap up, uh, the book club should be Thursday, 8 PM Eastern, 5 PM Pacific. Fred Rosen's the Bayou Strangler halfway done. That book is so short. We're halfway done moving on to Ben. We can read Bill Russell. That was the book we were supposed to read, but we did not uh, because it's that's why we're reading this goofy book. I <laughs> not want to read about uh, this racist serial killer going around and killing black males. But this book does intersect with Katrina. Exactly what we've been talking about today. I uh, haven't even got to that part of the book. I think we're in like 2004, 2003, 2004 uh, in the text. But Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Uh, Pacific, uh, Fred Rosen, Bayou Strangler. Looking forward, lots of participation. I didn't even uh, make that one mandatory. And lots of folks chimed in to share their thoughts there. Uh, I will get in one of our listeners. Uh, we were talking about this on neutralizing workplace racism. Yesterday, we had a victim of white supremacy, non-white female. Uh, she talked about a situation with a co-worker. And see, I'm not getting Anyway, the they were looking, trying to get a job, uh, no increase in pay, but just a title. And our cows listener got the position. This other victim of racism did not get the position. So we were talking about what's the best way to minimize conflict, make sure she doesn't get upset about it. Remember, and the white person, you know, made the decision about all this anyway. So we talked about this uh, the last uh, couple weeks. And yesterday uh, this was brought up and she answered several questions. Uh, around all of this. In fact, I'll save it for Thursday. I was going to talk about it today, but since folks are spectating and such, we'll save it for Thursday since everybody uh, was aware of what was happening Thursday and paying attention to all that. We'll catch up and go over the details Thursday for neutralizing workplace racism. Anywho, uh, folks do not have uh, any commentary 
spectating even that right there for a week like this with all of the amazing things that took place all over the planet to not have you know any commentary on any of the things that took place over the week like man that is not being uh, about the business of replacing white supremacy with justice in my opinion but anywho uh let's see uh oh oh there's uh our caller uh bay area mom yes ma'am uh do not dial in like for reals if you don't have anything to say i'm not dating anybody i'm at the beach it's other things to do i'm just making that as an observation it shouldn't have to be something for a week with the things that took place on the planet this week to just no thoughts like really 1200 people died in pakistan and you have nothing to say jackson mississippi they don't even have they can't even flush the toilet All right. Uh, the folks who dialed in who had a hand up, did you have commentary? Oh, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Oh, thank you. I, I had to work and I just got in, so I, I don't have any background noise. So, oh, I did have, um, I did have commentary. I didn't know other people didn't have commentary. Um, oh, uh, there was a clip with the it was a lady that she was just saying how um she didn't like going um being in this country because uh of so much racism and then when Trump was elected that uh I I guess it was a, a um a Caucasian male uh stared at her and said Trump was in office now and just how uncomfortable um she was feeling, and I'm sure it's not just her, how uncomfortable she was just feeling in this um, racist system. Um, that's what I wanted to comment on. I wasn't able to hear uh, everything else. I did hear a little something um, about Pakistan, um, but I had a lot of uh, noise because I was working. But I did want to say something about that, and I didn't know. No one had participated because I just called back in to catch the last 15 minutes. And um, thank you for allowing me to just uh, say something about that, and I'll mute myself. Much obliged, Bay Area Mom, the female uh, who was being terrorized, and Trump's in office now, and he spit at her and all of that. Uh, that was that segment where they said that uh, many citizens report being fearful especially non-white people being fearful uh, of being attacked in their neighborhood so-called that's why all of those terms community if you can't flush your toilet gotta boil your water you don't have a community you step out of your house negra get out of here you and your children ah, spit on you you're not in a neighborhood Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up. If you have commentary to share, proceed. Greetings, everyone. Uh, yeah, I was just uh, thinking about Jackson, Mississippi, and specifically the many students that's at Jackson State University which lies right in, in that, uh, that city. Uh, with 
residents in the city that that is their quote unquote home. Uh, although it's very, very terrible, I could, I can't imagine on what type of issues it would be for a student that is not from Jackson, Mississippi, that's not from the state of Mississippi in itself. Uh, and this catastrophe has taken place on a college campus. Uh, to be more specific, a quote unquote historical black college campus, which I attended two of them. And I know how tough it is even without something like no water. And, uh, just wondering how they are, uh, getting along, if they're still, uh, on campus. Uh, did they send them home? And then if, if they do allow them to go home, how are you going to be able to afford it? <laughs> you know, a, a lot of young people don't have the, the, the funds to, uh, barely have the funds to be at the school, let alone talking about going back and forth if they're not even from the state in itself. Uh, I haven't seen anything on that issue. The closest thing to it is, is of course, Deion Sanders and, and uh, the football team, which is actually down here uh, because of this game they'd be playing. They'd be playing tomorrow. But I'm, I'm thinking about the, the general student population that is not from Jackson, Mississippi, and that is not from the state of Mississippi and what condition they're in and what they what they're having to go through uh, with this catastrophe. Just thinking about it. That's all. Thank you. The Clarion Ledger, uh, much obliged, retired firefighter. The Clarion Ledger, that's the local uh, Mississippi paper. NPR actually had a report on that as well about uh, how this is impacting schools. They had to close schools in Jackson and go back to virtual. Now, you already heard about the impact that that had on black children in the news reports. The Clarion Ledger, their report, this is from yesterday, how the boil water notice has affected Jackson colleges and students. Uh, despite public officials' efforts to address Jackson's water issues, students at Jackson State have grown frustrated. Some students don't have air conditioning due to low water pressure. Now again, Mississippi, summertime, no air conditioning, no shower. Others have not been able to shower. Classes have been virtual while the university manages the uncertainty of when consistent and clean water will return. Jackson State is distributing bottled water to students, faculty, and staff in need. Austin Jacobs, 23, of Jackson said dealing with the water crisis has been quite challenging. This crisis has to stop, Jacobs said. It has affected me tremendously at JSU. I have not been able to shower two times with clean water after I work out brush my teeth 
or do my morning routines. The city of Jackson needs to do better. The people of Jackson, overwhelmingly black classified, deserve better living conditions, especially students that can't leave campus. The university has helped in many ways, but this issue weighs more on the city. Nikita Mills, 25, of Flowood, said she hopes the notice ends soon due to students leaving school early who might not return. I have been affected badly because I stay on the third floor of campus, Mills said. The water pressure is shallow and you must boil the water before bathing, doing laundry and cleaning. The crisis is inconvenient for students who can't afford to leave campus and handle day-to-day utilities, which puts them in difficult situations. I have not been able to go to any of the distribution water sites in Jackson because I don't have transportation. The Auxiliary Services Office on campus distributes water bottles to students through residence halls, which has been a great help. Jackson officials are asking students and residents not to drink the water nor give it to pets, cook with boiled tap water, and to wash dishes with boiled or disinfected water. Man. (sighs) Wow. That is Jackson, Mississippi in almost 2025 with a super black town. Hmm. Uh, were there any other folks who had comments they wanted to get in before we get to the end? Good evening, Gus and family. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. no, you go. No, you go. Okay. I um, it's been a while since I've called in, but um, you know, this to me is the biggest outrage. I, I can't believe it. It's like, I know it, it seems to happen, you know, periodically, but how in the world do you sit there? You're in charge. You're getting money. You're getting whatever you need, but you let the whole uh, water system just fall apart, and and that's okay. And I, and I think that that's, probably the biggest problem we have as, you know, America as a country is that certain people are allowed to do the most heinous things without any consequences. Because I don't think anybody served prison or anything for Flint or any of these other horrible, horrific things they've done. And, you know, it's appalling. I appreciate you, Gus. You did an excellent job laying out all this stuff. But, you know, I, and earlier, well, I can't remember when I heard about this Mississippi thing, but I get mad and then I'll go and I tweet at, uh, you know, Biden and Nancy, all of them. You know, what's going on? This is America. You got money, millions and billions of dollars. You're sending over there to Ukraine to kill people, right? And unfortunately, it sounds like they're trying to, they're gathering their weapons to use them against us. But you can't fix this water. So so I guess I'm just a, a, a good complainer sometimes. But I don't know, I don't know what we can do about it. I don't know if there's, there, but there should be something that maybe, you know, and I don't know what, like as, as a group, we get group people, everybody, or but this, but this is unacceptable. And we have, we've had Flint, probably other towns, and now we have 
Jackson, Mississippi. Where are the other towns that are vulnerable to this kind of incident? Why can't we just go ahead and fix them right now and be done with it? So, so that's my commentary. And I appreciate you taking my call. Appreciate you and the work you put in to, to put these um, shows together. And um, I, um, you know, that's the end of my commentary. Thank you. Uh, Bay Area Mom, thank you for your patience. Much obliged. Um, our caller in Michigan, uh, Go Blue, I reckon. Uh, Bay Area Mom and our caller at the courthouse in Florida as well. Uh, sure, thank you. So I remember another clip with um, you had this uh, a, a lady um, that had an encounter with this racist cop, and then he called. He called, he called her a nigger and was, I think she was, she sounded like a younger lady. And he was calling her all those names. And then um, when he was uh, asked about it, he denied that he did it and then just drove off. But it sounded like he, um, <clears throat> he lost his, uh, or at least it sounded like he got fired. Um, I know she wanted him to lose his job, but it did sound like thereafter he ended up uh, losing his job. But it just struck me um, when I was listening to the rest of the people speak. I, yeah, that was, that's interesting. They always lie, and if you don't have it recorded, it's just so complicated to prove it. So I'll mute myself. Thank you again. Deception. Deception. They always lie. Uh, our caller at the courthouse in Florida is with us as well. I feel compelled to mention it just, you know, if we really want to put all of this in context. So Flint, Michigan, Benton Harbor, Michigan, Newark, New Jersey, Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, again, the Tombstone Territory in California. When we talked about that a few weeks back, same thing, Blacktown, no water. Folks dialed in and said, dang, I live in California. I hadn't even heard about this. That's crazy. Like all of these majority black towns water problems where it's almost 2025 so remember way back in 1974 since they want to talk about all the goofy 50 year anniversaries for superfly and shaft 1974 three the hard way literally this is the tag on internet movie database I'm not this is not Gus's uh, goofy interpretation or what have you it's Black exploitation film featuring Jim Brown two times. Isn't that two times today? Uh, black exploitation film about three martial arts specialists who prevent white supremacists from tainting the U.S. water supply with a toxin that's only harmful to black people. Hmm. 1974. Here we sit nearly 50 years later and town after town of black people with water that is harmful to them toxic can't even get bottled water in some cases can't even flush the toilet hmm. call her at the courthouse in Florida yes sir thank you very much sir greetings to Gus the host the listeners and callers uh, on the uh, the the dire situation about the the water and it being it's, it does look like it's just where it's just centered around 
uh, areas where there is a high population of black people. And I was also thinking about how uh, there was a news report. I think it was in the New York area where they were talking about the, like how the different viruses and I think it was called polio or something like that. How they, I believe found it uh, in the water supply. And it's just so many ways that racists can uh, construct a way to uh, do devastating things to black people. Um, the, the segment about the young people or the teenagers getting a lack of sleep, that made me think as well about how much sleep uh, that I got at that time period. And it does seem to be around that same time, like six hours around that area. And that's one thing I'm still trying to work on myself. Um, and when it came to, it looks like it was a, a game or something where they were doing something about George Floyd. They were doing like a, a skit. And that same code they get on where they'll say, uh, you know, we'll have to inform them. We'll have to teach them that you can't do these things. And it just, and it just looks like it, it sounds like it goes into where white people like to say, oh, you got, you, you all are just being sensitive and it's just a joke. It's like they already know. They, they know that's practicing racism and they could just easily go into that. Um, defense to make it look like they aren't practicing racism and uh, they have black people victims get into the position where they think they're educating white people, but they are already the experts. And my last thing is I did see the, uh, and I had, <laughs> I had a workplace racism uh, story on that too, with the, the BYU, the black female, um, every white person that I sat around, the, the bailiff, the white supervisor, the other white woman, everybody looked down either at their phone or at their plate of food. Like at the, It was synchronized. It was at the same time. Um, but with, with that story, uh, that was interesting how I noticed that, like how you mentioned where I, I think the, uh, the police report or the policeman, did a report or something like that. And they did another report on it saying, well, uh, the police officer wasn't able to find where any racial slurs were used or anything like that. But I'm still searching to where at least the research I did, how is, how is it proven that the racism didn't happen, but white people are able to, um, be deceitful and get black people into thinking that it didn't happen. You know, you have a, a majority white environment in these stadiums and arenas and they will, they like to say heckle, but they are practicing racism and doing monkey chants. You know what I mean? Um, screaming, uh, nigger and stuff like that. And they'll just make it look like, Hey, you know, nothing happened. Or, hey, why, why didn't nobody pull out their phone? And then the multiple times where black people are mistreated and they have it recorded, they'll still find a way to, uh, to, to come up with some kind of justification that this, that is not racism. And they, 
continue uh, to practice racism in so many various ways. And uh, non-white people just have to continue to get more knowledge and understanding of the system of white supremacy. But other than that, that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. For sure. I have no idea how you would confirm, disconfirm that, oh, they didn't call her a nigger or whatever at the at the game. But that's what they said, you know. Anywho, like we didn't even include uh that report. Anywho, uh I can only say again, racist white people, they have not discussed Pakistan very much. <laughs> If this had happened in France, Germany, Switzerland, any place where it's a lot of individuals classified as white, they would have talked about this a lot more. A third of the country is underwater. 1,200, probably, it, easily, it could be 100% of that 1,200 or whatever the final total ends up being fatalities, all non-white people, easily. Katrina, Jackson, Pakistan, all predictable products, system of white supremacy racism, why this problem needs to be solved immediately. Three the hard way, that's what it's about. Toxins in the water that will just, they didn't say people of color, and they didn't even disaggregate that one. They said white supremacists, they didn't say the Negroes that are born here and all the rest, the Negroes. Anywho, much obliged uh, for the folks who shared. We'll be back uh, later in the week. Man, it was a historic week. All of the weeks are important. We should pay attention all the time. But this week, wow, lots of things that took place. Be informed about what is happening in your part of the world. Uh, The situation in Atlanta, that right there, man, especially this weekend, people are out and about. And, you know, if you're visiting or traveling even, be alert. We've heard so many reports that uh, Officer Robert Moore, I think is his name, uh, he wasn't on duty. We've heard Robert Malone, that was it in Atlanta. We've heard so many reports like that. Black family out driving, walking, minding my own business, do, 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 do. And then, Nick Rob, kill you. Be alert. And in fact, maybe even have to have a plan that sort of things happens what do we do is it we're getting out of here whoever has their phone maybe you get two people to get on the phone so they can call enforcement officers or whoever else but have a plan about what do we do if we're out and about if your children they are aspiring motorists maybe they just got their license and so they're going out having fun that sort of thing talk to them what to do if a so-called rude rage incident transpires this is what you want them to do this is the code you call me enforcement officers get to a safe location but whatever you you know think is this is the optimal plan for them talk to and repeat it the sleep component man i could talk about that for a day i had listeners like i said this week contact me about sheets invest that is that is one thing right there i wish 
I had got more sleep. I would be neighbors with LeBron James if I had got nine hours of rest consistently as a child, as a teen. Racism, white supremacy works to keep that from happening, but wow. Emphasize that with your children as a take the phone like you are a parent at 16. Hey, you pay the bill. They pay the bill. Uh, hey, you know, different thing. But I mean, geez, you pay the phone bill. You don't have to be a prison guard about it. But I mean, just it's for and explain. You can listen to that report like, hey, I did that, man. Stay up all night and texting your friends and all this. man. Your brain. That's what racists want you to do. Your brain computer, the thing that is going to sustain you for your life. You might have billion dollar ideas, spaceship ideas, end white supremacy ideas. You are valuable. Go to bed. That's why I said midnight bask. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. They got in Atlanta, no less. Now, you got Robert Malone threatening a whole black family. Pull a gun out. Run, 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 run. And then you come to me, oh yeah, that Robert Malone thing happened, and that's a shame. We don't we don't like, you know, nigger children being threatened. To make up for it, free passes to midnight basketball. Are you out of your flipping mind? If that's what it's gonna take to keep black people safe in two thousand twenty five, midnight basketball, we should just give up now. White people rule forever. We will just be retarded and pitiful for eternity. Go ahead and be supreme throughout the galaxy. Say that and repeat it so that it's clear. We need midnight basketball in order not to, you know, go crazy. No, go to bed. Get the get 10 hours. Hmm. How about that? 10 hours of rest. So you will be feeling extraordinary. And setting up patterns for the day talked about that you start getting that five hours and four hours and all of that in your teens they even had a study earlier this summer they said particularly when you're young and your brain computer is still developing not getting adequate rest could potentially leave you susceptible to dementia later in life and other brain problems that sleep is they've said it repeatedly white people don't even understand everything that happens when we're sleeping and why we sleep why it's so important what goes on in your body they are still learning but they know wow it is super important to your health and it is not valued at all in the system of white supremacy get great sheets great pillows i mean really dark environment get those blackout curtains that's what i got blackout curtains really like sleep is extraordinarily important for your health and well-being and make that a value for your children that's a part of how we replace white supremacy with justice we will wrap up there check the uh black talk radio and other sites updates for when we will broadcast next historic week on the plantation be informed sobriety would be best for many hey alcohol i believe 
disrupts your sleep patterns. In addition to being sober, if you're out and about, they could be armed, ready to kill. It could be an off-duty enforcement officer, no less. Robert Malone, he's still on paid. He's on paid administrative leave, so he hadn't been terminated. If you're in a vehicle, sober, buckled, not on a cell phone, doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows signing out. No name calling. No throwaway children. Jackson, Katrina, Pakistan. It is all the same thing. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>